Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Recorded live. Hello, this is Michael Adams. Stepping by the trick. One man's trying to find it. It's... July the 14th, 2015. This recording is going to be titled uh, The Toxic Relationship Between Romanism and Jewry. And uh, we're going to be listening to voices that we normally don't listen to to have a better understanding of our world. If we look first here at the headlines of Yahoo.com, I haven't done it in a while, see what, what's new in the headlines of the uh, government. The Roman Catholic slash jury government sponsored propaganda machine. Um, Bone Boehner uh, talks Catholic faith, Pope, in Sunday interview. Newsmax. And of course, he's one of attributed with being uh, responsible for what is going to make it or helping to make possible uh, the biblical, historical, prophetic antichrist, the man of sin, the man of perdition, uh, Pope Francis to come and demonstrate his ownership over, clearly, part of their territory, the Roman Empire, that being in the United States. Apparently, Never really had much sovereignty. It looks like Archbishop Caput released statement on fired Catholic school staffer, Philadelphia. Uh, <clears throat> Pope Francis is not a Marxist, but make no mistake, he will challenge the world-leading capitalist power. And we're going to find out about this because... Uh, as we listen to this uh, recording, we're going to discover that uh, Catholics think that capitalism equals state-sponsored usury, and maybe they have a point, because the fact of the matter is we never have had an opportunity to actually witness true capitalism in our lifetime, or in our parents' lifetime, or the generation before that, or... I think there was a brief period in time in America there was some semblance of it. It was allowed to happen because of space, distance, a need to colonize North America, and, of course, uh, a mystery Babylon. The Roman Empire had to make it either wipe out Native Americans. <laughs> to the use of their reduction camps called reservations and etc. So, uh, the Pope's unsettling message. Huffington Post. As if Republicans didn't have enough to worry about 
with Donald Trump. This is so stupid. If you haven't figured it out yet, this Republican Democrat stuff is the most biggest pile of nonsense on the planet. So let me get back for her. My son's mother. So anyways, uh, I should get going here. So anyways, the reason why I brought that up was the fact that uh, why is this one particular organization, that being the Roman Catholic Church, they see always in the headlines. Well, part of that reason is because they control, truly, they control the media. Now they throw out their puppet papal court Jews for the those who are too lazy to do more research and just say, hey, it's the Jews. And we're going to be listening to this guy named... E. Michael Jones, I'm not promoting him, supporting him, or endorsing him, but I'm just here to share with you his perspective. He's a Roman Catholic writer and author. And apparently he's done this research, and I guess a book, or... <clears throat> Press uh, hundreds of pages of his book, uh, The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit, The Impact of the World History. Let's go see. And there's this video out there called the Goy the Goy Guide to World History. We're going to be listening to that. I think it's important. I'm not here to promote what they're having to say, but I think we should understand uh, our oppressors and how they think. What do you think? And if you're not interested, I don't blame you. But before we do that, we're going to listen to a little bit about circumstances at hand with these under the rule of the Roman Empire. Of course, this is the uh, tomorrow will be the beginning of Jade Helm. I haven't done anything about that recently. And we'll have to just wait and see what happens. Maybe it's a huge, most likely the way things go, um, it turns out that um, what we worry about and think is going to happen usually is not the case. So, so anyways, we will start out with, um, I'm sorry, I'm getting so distracted. My son's mom's calling, so I can somehow get going here. Uh, Pocket of the Future YouTube channel. We're going to start out with a human meat found at the McDonald's Soylent Green. <laughs> and then we're going to talk about a little bit more of that for about 40 minutes, 45 minutes before we go into history, according to a Roman Catholic author. Okay, well, I, I saw that there was this article that was flowing around that McDonald's had been caught using uh, human meat, that they have found human meat and horse meat in an Oklahoma factory, a McDonald's Oklahoma warehouse. And um, this story ended up being a, like a fake news story that floated around the Internet, that floated around social media. And then I was thinking about it, and I thought, well, this looks a lot like some sort of disinformation piece. Because if you really think about it, how long before they start using human meat in the processed foods if they haven't already. 
Now, if you know anything about the modern-day farming systems, you know, I farmed for a little bit, and my family and I had a small farm for, for eight years, and I was surrounded by farmers. And um, my next-door neighbor's father-in-law, his wife's uh, parents, had a intergenerational dairy farm. They've been around since the 1920s or something like that. And he told me something. This is back about four or five years ago. My neighbor told me that his father-in-law wasn't making any money on the dairy farm because the um, what they were paying for milk hadn't gone up. The price of milk hadn't gone up in, since 1974 or 76 or something like that, that the price was basically fixed even with all the inflation, even with all the technical equipment being more and more expensive for dairy farmers nowadays, so that in reality being a dairy farmer was no longer profitable. Now, this, this was a, a, a farm where the dairy cows had access to grass. These, this family had acres and acres of grass, it still wasn't the kind of milk I would drink. We had a, you know, we had um, three acres for one cow basically, and um, I saw the dairy farm, and it was a lot of mud, and you know, cows were often uh, not in the best shape. They had diarrhea a lot. The Holstein breed of cow, that's the, the the black and white spotted cow. It's a, it's a it's a really big cow that gives like eight to ten gallons of milk. It gives an extraordinary amount of low quality milk but it's been overbred and they're often sick. And of course we have the factory farms. Now where I was living, a lot of people had beef cattle. They had beef cows and they would run them on a lot of acreage, you know, hundreds of acres of, of uh, grass, hang hundred acres of pasture. And there would be, um, there would be, uh, you know, not so many cows on this amount of pasture. And I was hearing over and over again that people were basically doing this as a hobby, an expensive hobby, because they never made any money. But they would get a tax credit. They would they would have hundreds of acres of land, and they would run 20, 30 cows on that land, of you know, 50 cows or whatever, just so they could get a tax break, so they could claim it as farmland, because the beef industry was no longer profitable to have these huge acreages of, of pasture. So now you see factory farms where these cows are packed on top of each other. And what they do is they just load the cows up with antibiotics. They do the same thing with chickens. These, you can watch videos of these disgusting farms where these animals are packed in together. They can barely move. You know, they're, they're, they, cows uh, defecate they're constantly. You know, they eat a lot of food. And they actually, one of their, their primary design is to add nutrients to the food. The cow dung is incredibly, uh, great, is incredibly good for the soil. It raises the, the and, and their urine as well. If you see where, a pasture where the cows urinate, you can just see these huge patches of green because you know, it's so full of nitrogen. So one of the things that cows do is they'll eat down a lot of the pasture and then they'll spread fertilizer throughout large chunks of the, of the plains, you know, this is what these kind of animals were designed to do. But when they're packed in together, you have all of this feces and this this slime, this disgusting uh, bacteria fest, and these animals are going to get sick, so they just inject them with antibiotics constantly. And so you have um, 
all kinds of diseases. It's a breeding ground for diseases. These the animals are not healthy, and they're not healthy for people to eat. To raise cattle and chickens the proper way, a free-range way, you need lots and lots of uh, land. It's just not, no longer cost-effective to do it that way. So that's when people buy these expensive free-range cows and free-range birds, grass-fed cows, and it's four or five times the price, three or four times the price of these factory farms per pound. And you can see where now, what's, what are they doing with human beings with this uh, Agenda 21? They're packing them in to these apartment complexes. So you have cows that need an acre of cow in lush areas and two to four or five acres of cows in the, in the Midwest and Texas and places like that because of the sparse nature of the grass. So you need uh, a, just an extraordinary amount of land to run cattle. And the same thing for hens because they spread diseases even more. So you need all this land for free-range hens and all the expense and the labor goes up and it's just it's harder to raise these types of, uh, of grass-fed animals for the amount of people you're trying to feed, the amount of meat eaters there now on the planet. And then you have hundreds and hundreds of people packed into a few acres of city. So what is the better product if you're thinking about livestock, if you're thinking about human beings as being livestock? Now, we already know the powers that be don't have a problem being cannibals because I've already just recently made a video about how the royal family admitted that they were eating meat. They were eating uh, human beings 300 years ago. Their ancestors were eating human beings 300 years ago, and, there's, and they were doing it for health purposes. You know, we see this with the Tour de France. You see this um, blood doping, they call it, where they boost the bicycle rider's blood count, the, the red blood cells, by giving them transfusion. So they really pack in the, the blood so that they can um, have a, a, a quicker return on their oxygen when they're, it's an endurance sport. And so people will do anything. They'll eat. I, there's no doubt in my mind that athletes, if they knew that it was better for them to eat human beings to compete, they would totally do that. And I think if you looked at a lot of people around the planet, they wouldn't even have a problem with it if they knew that McDonald's was actually putting some human beings in their food. You know, they're already doing this with cows that are vegetarian by nature. They were taking uh, parts of the cow that, that couldn't be sold off to uh, the, food pro the food production people, and they were putting it in the cow feed. You know, they throw a lot of molasses in the cow feed with a bunch of junk, and the, and the fact that it's so sweet, the cows will eat it because of the molasses or the sweetener they put in there, corn syrup or whatever. They were getting these vegetarian animals to eat, to be cannibals, basically, so that's part of what's going on with your, your milk in the, in the dairy industry. And if they're willing to do that for cows, why wouldn't they, they be willing to do that for people? They, everyone talks about the planet being so overpopulated and the human population growing, and there is a food shortage. And, you know, it's a difficult process, like I said, feeding people disease-free animals because of the nature of the business now these corporate factory farms, and so how long before they start doing this? This was already something when I was growing up. I watched this movie maybe a year or two ago, Soylent Green, 
again, I saw this movie when I was a kid, Charlton Heston movie, and it turned out, you know, if you haven't seen the movie already, um, this is sort of a spoiler, but the, the result is Soylent Green is people. There's a scene of Charlton Heston realizes Soylent Green is people, and he's in a church yelling, Soylent Green is people, and nobody cares in this post-apocalyptic world where there's energy shortages and there's food shortages, looks very much like the way the world is heading now. If the cannibal process even, even in, uh, isn't even started now, we already know that there's just this insidious junk that they put in all of the factory, all of these uh, processed foods, these chicken McNuggets and all these types of things that kids are used to, you know, what, what kids don't know what normal food looks like. They have all these frozen processed foods and all this stuff that's in these fast food restaurants, stuff that people are microwaving. So they take all this junk, like the lowest level of the, the meat products. We know already about hot dogs and these types of processed foods, what they put in there. And this has been going on for 100 years at least or more, hundreds of years of just the junk, you know, the, the chicken feed and, the, you know, just all the stuff that nobody wants to eat. They grind it up and put it in a sauce. It's just disgusting. And so this has been going on. And now you see this processed food is everywhere. And I think that you look at a doped down bunch of kids who are morally uh, deficient based on being on the Internet for seven and a half hours a day and very little contact with their parents and any sort of uh, morals and then these sorts of things. Well, I don't think they're going to have a problem, especially when people are being starved, going to a situation where because of overpopulation and a breakdown in the economic system and uh, planetary upheavals and war and all the things that we're facing right now as a planet, eating people is just around the corner. I mean, I just, it, this guy disgusted me when I realized that this fake article was maybe planting the seeds of things to come. You know, this movie Jupiter Ascending featured this idea of harvesting a planet. They would get a planet to raise, raise to a certain population level and these technologically advanced beings would harvest the planet and they were using the genetic material, the skin cells of the of the people to produce a, a useful effect, a sort of found the youth type situation. So this is another little bit, bit, bit of, uh, of um, predictive programming we're seeing going back into the 1970s with soil and green. And you see this over and over again becoming a theme with all the vampire movies, all the zombie movies, both zombies and vampires feature this idea of cannibalism where the, where the vampires eat, uh, drink human blood and the uh, zombies eat human flesh. So uh, it's, it's disgusting. And given all the stuff that we know already that they've already done, they're already willing to murder people in the, in the worst possible way. They're already willing to use depleted uranium and these sort of horrific materials that leave a poisonous residue behind for a billion years. And we all know about the corporate crimes, the environmental uh, crimes that they've committed, just destroying the, the environment of the planet. So morally, I know that the people that run this world have no problem feeding other people meat and probably dining on meat themselves. It might be considered some sort of bizarre delicacy with all this satanic rituals and all these types of things. Where I already talked about how there's a lot of evidence and rumors 
about the royal family drinking blood, and there was that Indian reservation where the queen was was basically convicted in an international court of disappearing 10 children. So I just covered that in the, the previous video to this one. So, uh, Ick, you know, just it's just disgusting. I'm kind of just, I, I really don't know what to say about this. But if you think about it, this story became a social media a viral story. Now, I'm sure there are a lot of doubters, and there always is, are, are to these types of stories. But it was passed around social media enough because a lot of people could conceive, could conceive of the idea that McDonald's was, human, was using human meat in their burgers. A lot of people thought this was believable because that's how bad the world has become, that we can say, yeah, I could believe that happened. I mean, I thought, yeah, it's probably fake because they, if they were doing it, we would never know about it. But it's believable. How many people wouldn't think McDonald's would do this if it was cost-effective for them, if there was some way for them to save some money or some other more insidious reason for them to do it? Of course they would do it. We all know that. You know, these people have no morals that run our planets. This is, yeah, this is kind of a new low. I don't, I don't know what to say about this, but I, I believe that this is a, an idea that is uh, something that people should be concerned about. It's something that if it, ha if it isn't happening already, it's just around the corner. Social Security is... Okay, we can all sleep a little sounder and a little safer tonight because apparently FBI and local authorities have taken down Jared Subway's Jared. The FBI and local authorities have gone to his house and raided his house looking for child pornography. Jared, of course, is this uh, famous, iconic figure. He was a obese person who lost 200 pounds eating just Subway sandwiches and became Subway spokesman. I believe he's worth something like $15 million. I read in one of these articles. And he had a large foundation for obese children. And if you know anything about these foundations, if you look into these foundations and these charitable organizations, they often are gateways for abducting children and um, turning children into prostitutes and um, sexually abusing children. So this guy who was the um, chairman of the foundation, his name was Russell Taylor. Apparently he was trafficking some sort of child pornography and um, he was uh, filming child pornography and he got busted and so now they're investigating. Jared, this is where our world has gotten just completely bizarre. Just the fact that this guy Jared is sort of a iconic fair figure if you mention the name Jared, people like know who you're talking about. He seems to be always seemed to be some sort of an odd figure. You know, I just did a, a video on Bill Cosby, and it's interesting to see the different tiers, the different levels in this demonic, satanic, Illuminati hierarchical system, who they'll burn and who they won't burn, who they'll sacrifice for a distraction or who they'll, they'll end up turning on. The same day that I learned about Jared, I saw this thing on Facebook, Someone else posted almost like right next to this article about Jared, 
another article about the Queen of England. Now, I've known about this for a while. I know a lot of other people know about this. The Queen abducted these children from Canada. Let me just go ahead and read the article. It says, in the second week of May 2014, British soldier Vivian Cunningham was drugged and institutionalized against his will. Apparently, his crime on May 6th was daring to ask superiors about Queen, about Queen Elizabeth's outstanding arrest warrant. In, in order to arrest Queen Elizabeth, the order to arrest Queen Elizabeth was issued in 2013 by six judges of the International Common Court of Justice in Brussels. After nearly a year of litigation, Queen Elizabeth and her husband, Prince Philip, were found guilty in the disappearance of 10 native children from the Catholic-run Kaloops Residential School in British Columbia, that's Canada, and grieving parents haven't seen their children since they left for a picnic with the royal couple on May and October 10th, 1964. So there's these kids, and they went, they're young, young Indian children, Native American children, or Native Canadian children, and they were um, went out to a picnic with the royal family and disappeared. And um, yeah, so and then there was this this trial, and um, it involves the uh, nice circle of the satanic cult. In, in April, a second international trial began in Brussels on global elite members of the nice circle of the satanic cult. A little background here: they unearthed, I believe it was somewhere around 50,000 children, um, native children in Canada. So there's these these. Uh, Catholic schools up there, and they were just abusing and slaughtering and killing. It might have been uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of different schools around there, hundreds of thousands of kids. I got some articles somewhere. So this was just all on earth. They, 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 un, they dug around the school area, and there was just skeleton after skeleton of young Native children. And so the, the queen was involved in this, and one of the former popes involved the Jesuits. A lot of people talk about the Jesuits. And it says, goes, the article goes on to say, a court document has been filed indicating that in January of 2012, UK Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, acted under the direction of Queen Elizabeth to destroy forensic remains of the nice circle satanic cult child homicide. Two witnesses have testified that as children they were present during the same murder of the native children. The satanic rite eventually occurred in a sub-basement catacomb under the West Wing of the Canadian Branton, Ontario, Mohawk Indian Residential School. The two witnesses alleged that they saw a young girl being bound at the altar. The five- or six-year-old child was gagged, repeatedly raped, killed, disemboweled, and dismembered. Her blood, blood was consumed by the, ninth, the nine red-robed figures that included a member of the British royal family. So... Um, what, what has been said about this is that what they do is they take a young child, usually a prepubescent child, right around 11 or 12, and they amp up the child through a, a wide variety of scare tactics. Again, this goes on in the MK Ultra mind control program with the, the, the beta kittens and this kind of twisted thing. But what they do is they amp up the child's adrenaline levels. They get them really... A scare, really frightened, and then they kill them and drink their blood and the adrenaline. They get an adrenaline rush. They're consuming the children's adrenaline, and this has been going on for a number of years. There's also um, 
of course, the royal family, I've talked about this in other videos, this is something that they admit to, they are relatives, they are ancestors of Vlad the Impaler, or um, Count Dracula, as he's known. <laughs> so they are direct descendants of Vlad the Impaler. Prince Charles was actually out there trying to save uh, Vlad the Impaler's um, mansions, or one of his castles, one of his estates out there in Romania. So they are related to Vlad the Impaler. And then just 300 years ago, they have admitted that that uh, that 300 years ago, members of the royal family, kings and queens, were consuming dead bodies. They called it corpse medicine. It was for uh, health purposes. And so this has been going on now for centuries. This is something that they're into eating people as a way for, for health care, as a way for God knows what. I mean, you got these people who are, you know, these royal people who are celebrated they're put up on a pedestal, all these kind of things. This is the kind of twisted world we look on. These are iconic figures, and they're into eating other people and babies and children. I mean, they're eating babies, they're eating children, they're raping babies, and they're raping young children. And uh, it's just, you know, what can you say about that? That's our world right now. That's part of the world we live in. This is part of what, what's, in, what's called the Kali Yuga in the, uh, in the, in the, the Hindu philosophy. It's a measuring of the various periods of time. It's just a real demonic, demented time where the demonic forces rule over the earth. I'm going to make a, a video about this um, pretty soon, just about why sometimes the bad guys win. It's a remake of another video I've already made. There are just periods in history where evil reigns, and I'll talk about that more in a future video. But you can see it right here. So you have this royal family. They're... Uh, Admitted cannibals, or they come from a line of admitted cannibals. The queen has been um, charged from an international court. It's a well-known. This is a well-known investigation that she was involved in the disappearance of these ten children. We all know about the Catholic Church and their involvement in abusive activities with children for for centuries now. We see this stuff all over the place with all these kind of things. I mean, just all these organizations. We know about these things that go on in Washington, D.C. There's been so many politicians that have been caught up with uh, pedophilia and this type of behavior, and then, you know, the, the abduction of children. And then we see this again in Hollywood. So these are things that are well documented. So when I talk about, well, there's a widespread aspect of pedophilia in our country, um, in the world by the people that run the world. And something I found out about years ago, you know, I worked with uh, sexually abused children and sex offenders. That was some of my work when I was a counselor. I, used to, you know, I have a master's degree in counseling. I used to counsel these types of, of, of clients. And I worked in these treatment centers, and I worked with people who were abused. And I looked into some of the laws. This was like 10 or 15 years ago, and I had no idea about a conspiracy didn't know what the Illuminati was, didn't know there was satanic, I didn't know anything. I just thought people were, were crooked, you know, politicians were crooked. I, didn't, I was cynical, but I didn't have any idea of the depths of this thing. And when I looked into the laws, I couldn't believe it that, uh, well, first of all, everybody knows that sex offenders are the most uh, degraded people, the people that, have, that, that they're like the lepers of society, you know, the, the moral lepers 
of any society, even in prisons, the prisoners, other prisoners, will kill, beat, and ostracize the child molesters and, this, and the pedophiles. So even in the criminal world, sex offenders are viewed as the lowest forms of life. All of the kids I work with, and a lot of them, you know, they were abused as children. They grew up in ritualistic, abusive environments. It was clearly not any choice of theirs, at least uh, on uh, a conscious level. You can say something about their souls and some scars. I've talked about that in other videos, you know, pre-soul plans and things like that. But other than that, you know, pre-birth plans. Uh, but other than that, you can't fault these kids because they grew up and were trained to be these types of people. And it just runs rampant in our society. There's so many children that are victimized, and all children are victimized in one way or another based on the high degree of pornography and the nature of pornography and how these kids are exposed to pornography. I'm going to get into this a little bit when I make the follow-up to my Full House video. I'm not going to discuss that here. But I looked at the laws and the laws were basically like, you know, once a child realizes they were abused, like let's say they were an adult and they blocked out their abuse, they had basically two years to report it for any kind of criminal activity. It's a state-by-state -state thing. But the statute of limitations on uh, child abuse is unbelievably low. And I was looking at them like, it's like pedophiles wrote these laws. <laughs> this is what I was saying 15 years ago. I looked into the various, um, it's just the laws are written in such a way because the children themselves, I mean, you're talking about a kid who's just been sexually abused, right? And the kid's completely emotionally wrecked. So they're going to make really bad witnesses. You know, they're not, some lawyer's going to tear them apart on the witness stand. They're not in any way going to get this person convicted. So the children themselves have no chance of getting justice. Sir. This is why pedophiles go free. This is why this, this thing's a plague. And then years afterwards, when the child grows up, they have a, a small window of opportunity uh, to report the crime. And often they've been involved in drugs and uh, they're probably sexually promiscuous. So when they go and report the crime and they're on the witness stand again, they're in a bad shape. They've been damaged by this process. It's obvious that all of these laws are written by pedophiles. And so then you have Prince Charles, who was really, really good friends with this guy, Jimmy Savile. And Jimmy Savile was, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name right, but Jimmy Savile was this English DJ, very similar to Dick Clark here in America. He was instrumental in making the Beatles famous, and he had a variety of different shows, TV shows, and he had full access to the royal family. He was able to walk right into the royal, uh, to all the palaces, and, uh, you know, just complete... Um, like he was a member of the royal family, the only person who was able to do this. There's many pictures of him and Prince Charles together. And this guy had thousands and thousands of victims where he molested thousands, like, like a thousand children or more. It's, they're, 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 now that he's dead, it's coming out. The BBC and, uh, um, and the British police covered up his crimes, and he was involved with a lot of different powerful people, including the royal family. Sex with corpses, just bizarre stuff. There's a great video. I watched it. I'll leave a link in the description box. It's about how this guy was a wizard. It's really well worth. It's really uh, well worth watching. And so this guy was just this creepy guy, 
it's connected to the royal family on the highest level. Pictures of him with the queen, pictures of him with Prince Charles. Everyone knew that he was close to the royal family, and they all had to know about this. So, again, it's just another the cannibalism, uh, friends with sex offenders. And then there's this recent scandal with Prince Andrew. I believe he's the queen's other son, uh, the, the Duke of York. And he was um, involved with this guy, this convicted pedophile named Jeffrey Epstein, a billionaire. He's close to the Clintons. And he was um, convicted of basically trafficking children to the rich and famous. And there was a young woman who said she was Prince Andrew's sex slave, had to perform sexual favors. I believe she was 15 or 16 at the time. And she's later come out with these allegations. Also, that uh, Jeffrey Epstein bailed out Prince Andrew's ex-wife, Ferguson, Sarah Ferguson, who's had financial issues, and he gave her a large, large chunk of money. So you have these pedophiles. These royals are indebted to these pedophiles. Um, again, this guy was a convicted pedophile. Uh, so it's just the list goes on and on. These ties are all intertwined. You see it over and over again. All of these people... Um, within politics, within celebrity, within royalty, within the wealthy. You see this condition over and over again where the people are uh, connected to sexual abuse and pedophilia. All right, when I was pulling screenshots, I found a variety of interesting quotes about Jeffrey Epstein. This one I wanted to draw attention to is from Donald Trump, and he says, I've known Jeff for 15 years, terrific guy. He's a lot of fun to be with. It's it is even said that he likes beautiful women as much as I do, and many of them are on the younger side. No doubt about it, Jeffrey enjoys his social life. That was from Donald Trump in 2002, presidential candidate Donald Trump. Hillary Clinton and the Clintons have been tied to this guy, Jeffrey Epstein, as well. He was a, a, a strong supporter and donor to Hillary's uh, run for president in, I believe, uh, 2008. So, um you would think this would come up. Here's a guy who's connected strongly to two presidential candidates and former president Bill Clinton, as well as to the royal family. You think this is newsworthy? You think that people might be interested in this, the scandal of it, you know, big money and, and, and sexual abuse? I mean, if you think of some of the things that have become public, some of the news stories, this is a huge, much bigger news story in many different ways. So this shows you where they're not going to discuss this. This is a power player, this guy, Jeffrey Epstein. I don't know how he got busted and served time in the first place, but clearly people don't want this to be a major news story, or it would be. It's got all the things that would make a, a very viral news story. And, of course, we shouldn't forget about their connection to Satanism. And I saw this thing on Prince Andrew, I don't know, four or five months ago. I looked into it a little bit, and I was looking into this guy, Jeffrey Epstein, going to make a video on it sometime in the future. I didn't know when. And um, I came across a picture of Jeffrey Epstein with Woody Allen. So Jeffrey Epstein, this, this guy, this, this convicted billionaire pedophile, has a relationship with Woody Allen. And I remember there was some allegations of Woody Allen being a sex offender, a pedophile. And what I remembered and what most people remember was he was married to this woman, Mia Farrow and she had a bunch of adopted children. And I should say that, I should remind everybody that Mia Farrow played Rosemary in Rosemary's Baby. Now, this was a famous uh, movie made by the convicted pedophile Roman Polanski. 
he raped some model, some actress, I believe she was 13 or 14 years old, and he fled the country and didn't come back for many, many years. And Roman Polanski made a variety of movies about uh, satanic movies, basically. He made one called The Ninth Gate. Now this is going back, and now we're connecting it to the ninth circle with the Queen of England and Canada and the disappearance of these children. So here's a connection with that already. But Roman Polanski made this movie called Rosemary's Baby, which was the birth of the Antichrist, and Mia Farrow played Rosemary, and she was unwittingly unwittingly impregnated by a satanic cult and gave birth to the Antichrist. So this is the woman who's adopting all these children. You often find these celebrities or these rich people adopting children, and these children are suffering a great deal of sexual abuse, often are sacrificed. So they take these kids in from foreign countries, even on lower levels without people being rich and famous. You see this. These were kids I work with who were, who were adopted, and they were adopted into families that abused them. So this is a very common practice. Again, these things with the charities, these things with the foundations, these things with all these um, organizations that pose as helping needy people, and they go into these needy communities, and they throw a little money around, and they're able to conduct slavery activities, sex slavery activities, just a horrible, horrible thing. So Mia Farrow adopted all these children. Her, Woody Allen, got married. And then Woody Allen married this 18-year-old adoptive uh, daughter from Korea, from South Korea. Now, every, now, I think most people identified the sexual abuse charges with that uh, relationship that he married his adoptive daughter, which seemed really strange. And that Mia Farrow was really bitter that Woody Allen ran off with this adopted girl and she caused a lot of allegations and she got emotional and she got a little bit uh, mentally, she was mentally unstable. That's how it was presented by the media. But it was actually another daughter, a daughter named Dylan Farrow, who was the person who, um, that Mia Farrow said that she, that he sexually abused. And Dylan Farrow wrote this um, open letter, I guess, to a lot of Woody Allen celebrity friends. And I guess she's in her teens now. And this is what she wrote. This is part of what she wrote. What's your favorite Woody Allen movie? Before you answer, you should know, when I was seven years old, Woody Allen took, took me by the hand and led me into a dim closet, closet-like attic on the second floor of our house. He told me to lay on my stomach and play with my brother's electric train set. Then he sexually assaulted me. He talked to me while he did it, whispering that I was a good girl and that this was our secret, promising that he'd go to, that we'd go to Paris and I'd be a star in his movies. I remember staring at the toy train, focusing on it as it traveled in its circle around the attic. To this day, I find it difficult to look at toy trains. And she goes on from there. So in terms of these allegations, I found a variety of, of articles that basically supported a lot of these types of, uh, supported that Woody Allen basically sexually offended this girl, that Mia Farrow never went to the police about the allegation of sexual assault. Allen had been in therapy for alleged inappropriate behavior toward Dylan with a child psychologist before the abuse allegations was presented to authorities and made public. Allen refused to take a polygraph test administered by the state of Connecticut police. Allen subsequently lost four exhausted court battles, a lawsuit, a disciplinary charge against the prosecutor, and two appeals, and was made to pay 
more than one million in million in Mia's legal fees. The judge said the presiding judge said in the case no credible evidence to support Mia Allen's contention that Miss Farrell approached Dylan or that Miss Farrell acted upon the desire for revenge against him seducing Son Yi. That's his his other wife. So the judge basically dismissed all of his um his uh, his his arguments and then it goes on to say here. In his 33-page decision, Judge Wilk found that Mr. Allen's behavior toward Dillian was grossly inappropriate and that measures must be taken to protect her. So this is all stuff that happened within a court. Dillian's claim of abuse was consistent with the testimony of three adults who were present that day. So there were three people that worked in the, the, the Woody Allen household, and they were all basically corroborated their story. The Yale New Haven Hospital sex abuse clinic finding that Dylan had not been sexually molested cited repeatedly by Allen's attorneys was not accepted as a was as reliable by judge Wilkes, judge Wilk or the Connecticut state prosecutor who originally commissioned them. And it goes on to say uh, the panel consisted of two social workers and a pediatrician who signed off on the report, but never saw Dylan or Mia Farrell. They never entered the victim, the victim or her mother, and no psychologist or psychiatrist were on the panel. Um, so these were people that basically were, uh, they were just like kind of shills. Alan changed his story about the attic where the abuse allegedly took place. First, Alan told investigators he had never been in the attic where, he, where the, uh, the alleged abuse took place. After his hair was found in the painting in the attic, he admitted that he might have stuck his head in there once or twice. So he lied about ever going into his own attic, which seems strange. If you live, if you live in a house, you're definitely probably going to go into the attic. And then, then this, uh, the prosecutor said he did have probable cause to press charges against Allen, but declined due to the fragility of the child victim, which I talked about. That's always the case. And, um, yeah, so that's just uh, some of the stuff on Woody Allen. So you have him married to an actress connected to satanic movies. They've adopted a lot of children, and there's sexual abuse going on in their um, family, and they are connected to a pedophile who's con- a, a convicted billionaire pedophile who's convicted, who's connected to royal families, and he was a donor to the Hillary Clinton campaign, among other politicians. And, of course, all of these are connected, Hollywood and royal families and politicians and big money. So you see that this, these things all illustrate all of these different things. So then you have Bill Cosby and Jared, who are lesser people in some ways in this hierarchical system, and they get burned where the Woody Allens and the Queen of England and these other people get away basically scot-free. This guy... Jeffrey Epstein was convicted. I believe he served some time in some federal country club type facilities. So he didn't really do any real time. Billionaires don't do real time. It's just these lower level people. And of course, Bill Cosby isn't going to jail. And we'll see about this guy, Jared, or how much he's actually involved, or this is just some sort of another one of these distractions. The real issue for me, and I, I really wasn't looking forward to making this video. I saw the thing with Jared, and I saw the thing with the Queen, and I just knew it was a good way to contrast these two stories. So I think the video came out all right, but I've just worked with this stuff for so many years now. And sexual abuse is a plague. If you know anything about the way the human mind works in terms of when you're into something, like I talked about this in other videos, people who are into Star Trek say, 
um, or into, you know, a sport or into drugs or into um, drinking or into, uh, you know, anything that's a hobby. It's sort of an obsession of people. They want everyone else to be into it. If you're passionate about something, you want other people to be into it. And when you're into a legal activity, when you're a criminal, you want everyone else to be a criminal. Uh, and the people around you, you want to be criminals because criminals won't rat each other out um, when they have something to lose. <laughs> uh, they might rat each other out um, in, in some circumstances, but they're less likely to rat somebody out than somebody who's not a criminal. If you're a whistleblower, if you're a person with morality, you're much more likely to um, go to the authorities and try to seek justice for people. If you're a per person with morals and ethics, if you're a God-loving person, if you're a person uh, on a spiritual path, you're much more likely to pursue the downfall of somebody doing something wrong than another criminal who only rat the other person out if there's some sort of advantage for them, if they're, you know, they've been um, busted by the police and they're going to get a better deal, so they'll, they'll take down their, their friends and so forth, uh, but only in, in, in self-centered interest. And so when you see that these criminals, these people who are satanic, are running the system, you know that they want everyone else to be like them. And this is where I'm talking about their number one goal is to disconnect you from the God within you. Um, this is their ultimate, uh, their ultimate goal is to have people have no relationship with God at all, specifically with an internalized version of God. Because when you're connected to God within, not only were you're more likely to negatively influence the criminal activities of these people. You know, I just made a video about um, the God within. I talk about this in all my videos. But when you are a person connected to a spiritual, uh, to the spiritual side of yourselves, when you're connected to the, um, the, the love source, the primary love source, the interdimensional love source, then you're changing the vibrations of the world around you. And um, you are going to pull out things. You're basically helping to shine a light on the dark planet the way it is now. You know, we live in a criminally-based cesspool right now, but everybody who's doing some sort of godly work or godly practice or is thinking about God, is feeling God, is feeling love and, and living a more natural existence, anybody living more naturally, living in a more organic way, spiritually organic way, uh, you know, a natural way of living, is helping to bring light into this dark planet, and that's going to expose a lot of the dark dealings of these people. So that's their number one goal. So you, when you understand the nature of, your, in a sense, your enemy or the, um, the malicious nature of the antagonist in this planet, then you understand it's, it, your job, the number one job you have, is to go deeper and connect to God and bring more light and more subtle vibrations and raise the, um, raise the vibrational quality of this planet. And just by doing that, you'll see a map. Okay. I'm having enough of that. So anyways, it was very good. What he is, his exposure to, uh, uh the queen of England, Woody Allen, all that was going on as far as Romanism, uh, the Roman Catholic Church, Jesuits, their involvement, uh, in Canada, only one of many places, uh, with the, uh, pedophilia ring, um, 
their child abuse and sacrifices that were going on there with the Native Americans. And I also started out with Soylent Green. It's people, a human meat found in McDonald's. Um, why did I bring those two up before we go on? Further is because I wanted to, once again, establish the corruption that's in Rome <clears throat> and that is undeniable. I'm trying to think of where to go from here because I am in a bind. Uh, I have to go get my son. He's got strep throat, so I think I'm... And, um, but I want to keep this recording going. I do want to... I think what we'll go, and if I have time, I'll go to another one as well. Which uh, there's a new video or a guy explaining, like we, that blue star of state of Israel, and how that star represents 666. And it's once you get past all the nonsense, you start to study scriptures with history and all that, you realize that 666 means a Latin man. It's a symbol of the Roman Empire and of uh, the papacy. And so when you see that big blue star, it came right after the uh, Jesuit contrivance, a papal-controlled institution called the United Nations with its blue emblem. And uh, you know, a lot of people say that that emblem uh, with the flat earth represents the flat earth. Yeah, I don't know much, so much about that, but I do know one thing, when you see those two, the spreading of the wings of the two laurel leaves, that's Symbolic of the fact of the, the desire of creating a, a new world order, which is this, the Roman Empire. <laughs> That's what it is. And blue is a symbolic color for temporal power. You'll discover that that hexagram, um, not only was found in many other places throughout the world, but in particular in the Roman Empire and in the papacy, and that's a symbol when you see that blue hexagram that represents the state of Israel. It's for those that are to know that Rome is in control of it. Because the Jesuits, Rome, the papacy, the Knights Malta, whatever. The Illuminati, it's all the same thing. It's the Roman Empire. <clears throat> so you listen to this guy that, I've been, that we've been listening to recently this week, <clears throat> Pockets of the Future. Clearly he's not a Christian. Therefore, one of the codes or one of the uh, hints to know if a person isn't really a believer in the Word of God is they'll always talk about the Illuminati and they never go beyond that because they don't want to, they don't believe in the Bible, they don't believe in the Word of God, and they don't want anything to do with it. And so they just keep talking about the Illuminati. Obviously, this guy is influenced at this point in his life under uh, New Age Luciferianism. And saying that doesn't mean that he didn't share some very important information, and he has. I'm not promoting him personally, but he does. He's been gifted with the ability to communicate clearly, distinctly about some of the major issues in our life. So I think what I'll go to now, we'll get out of this, with the hope that this will work. Now this guy, once again, he, uh, e. Michael Jones is a Roman Catholic apologist and author. Now, why am I sharing this with you? Well, I think it's really important to hear their perspective, to understand uh, their twisted thinking um, of this unholy, toxic relationship between Romanism and Jewry, 
um, and that uh, how <clears throat> there's been this unsettling, unhealthy alliance between the leadership of these two religious political groups. We know the political group of Zionism or the Jewry is uh, what Zionism, Labor Zionism, British Zionism, Zionism. But uh, we also know, if we do any history, that the Jesuits were instrumental in the creation of Zionism, which is an irony of ironies because they spent so much time blaming everything on the Jews. But why did they do that? Well, obviously because the Jews are a front group and they have a great disdain for the Jews and the Jews have a great disdain for Romanism and the goal of the state of Israel eventually is to annihilate a whole bunch of Jewish people <laughs> along with the Protestant Christians in the Western Roman Empire and uh, Muslims this seems to be the clear agenda at hand and then, of course, there's the whole thing about a third temple, which will not be the third temple that is scriptural, because there's no scripture about a third temple. It will be a Masonic, uh, a Romanist temple. Uh, the, the temple of Sol Solomon's temple. Their version of it. How they will go about it, only time will tell. Uh, so they don't really necessarily need to build a new temple because there's already one there. It's called the, you know, the, the, the Muslim mosque there. So, <clears throat> Dome of the Rock, which is clearly that's what it is. <clears throat> but you know, they could add on to it, destroy it, do whatever they want. Maybe they'll put uh, one of their uh, a basilica there, or who knows? Only time to tell. You can always speculate at this point how it's going to look and what's going to happen. But I do want us to listen to this uh, E. Michael Jones. He is a Roman Catholic apologist. The name of this video is uh, the uh, Goim, or excuse me, Goy Guide to the to World History. So Goy Guide to World History, and I think it's based on his book. <clears throat> well, he's just going to be talking, but he had authored a book, The Jewish Revolutionary. Spirit and its impact on world history. I'm not supporting what this man is saying, but I think it's really important to understand an intellectual coming out of Romanism, their view of the world. Because I think we make a great mistake many times as biblical Christians to think that we actually know really where they're coming from. We might understand their apostate religion, how it's all idolatry, how it is simply the uh, you know the Babylonian mystery religion, but now let's understand where they're coming from, what they think really, what do their intellectuals think? Um, hopefully, you'll get something out of it. You know, the one thing I would for ask anybody is to think about if you hear this and it starts raising your blood pressure. You might want to ask yourself, why is that? You know, a lot of people, they hear guys like this, and they get really angry, upset, hateful towards Jews because they can't think past the propaganda that they're being here, listening to or seeing. They don't understand 
how uh, the Roman Empire works and through this uh, media system, there's this corporations that pr- push all these images and messages out there. You know, why, you know, ask yourself a question. Why is it so easy to find so much about um, Zionists, the Jews, that are these, as uh, Eric Phelps says, court, papal court Jews? Why are they always right there in the front? Always, all the time. It's so easy to find stuff like that. And ask yourself, you know, if you were uh, running an empire, would you not want to have shields, protections, all sorts of things to protect you from the people that you're oppressing, the people in your empire? So what you would do is you would constantly have all these front groups that are involved in the conspiracy. They are. You know, it's, um, there is a, this sick, toxic relationship between Rome and Jewry. Uh, this is a reality. But why is that? Why does Rome allow that? Uh, when they hate them so much and they have this desire to destroy them, um, well, that's because they, you know, when you think about it, if you were a clever uh, dictator, emperor, well, you want the people to be focused on everything and everybody but you, unless it's something positive that looks good on you. That's the way it works. It's propaganda. It's public relations. And you ask yourself, well, why do all these Jews comply to it? Well, greed, money. You know, let's face it, a lot of people believe that the way to change the system is by being involved in it, being active within the system, the satanic matrix, the system. They feel that if I get involved in politics, or if I get involved with the social, so if I get involved in my religion, and I get into places of power, I can change things. By the way, this thinking's been going on for thousands of years. It's not something new or our generation, the generation before that. It's been going on forever. And this is thinking, and ultimately what happens with the way that the system is designed is that it consumes you, destroys you, corrupts you, and to a point where they basically you really give up and you only think about one thing, yourself, money, prosperity for yourself, a uh, bigger house, maybe some of the people, maybe your group, um, and you say the hell with everyone else because you can't do anything about it. This is the way it is. So why do... These uh, Zionists, these court Jews, papal court Jews, why are they so involved in the Roman Empire? Why are they so complying to it? Well, it's expediency, it's uh, prudency on their part, right? They are godless people, or at least they don't have the spirit of Christ in them. They deny Christ, so they put their faith in themselves. And so you'll find an awful lot of very capable, brilliant, sinister, psychopathic people, whether Jew, Romans, Muslims, Protestants, atheists, who rise to the top in this corrupt system. And they just keep perpetuating the system. It gets worse and worse. And Christ told us this, it'll get worse and worse and worse until it's coming because men put their faith in themselves and in their systems and instead of the one and true living God. And they'll do anything 
once they get to a certain point, let's face it, once you're to a certain point of corruption, you will literally end up fighting the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. I look at myself before I was saved and how I had no interest in it. In fact, I was against my Lord and Savior. And um, I was willing to uh, say, do, be part of things that uh, now that the Spirit of Christ is in me, I have no desire to be part of. That's why. You know, it really comes down to, once again, do you have, you know, the spirit of the one and true living God in you, or do you have your own will? So we're going to now listen to this propagandist, this Roman Catholic propagandist. I think it's really important to listen to the other side. I think if anybody's been following this show, I've now done over 400-plus shows and recordings <laughs> developing uh, who, you know, and sharing who the head of the snake is, the spider of the web, it all goes to Rome. At this point, now let's now look at someone who's sucked up into the system, who believes in it, what he has to say. I think it's important to hear their side. Not to promote it, not to say to justify it, but to see where their thinking comes from, because that's what we're dealing with in reality. In reality, we're dealing with a bunch of people that are twisted in their thinking. And I'm sure they'll say that about myself. It all depends on where you're at and all things, but if you anchor yourself in the Word of God and not in the papacy or in some man, you'll come to a very similar conclusion. Very disturbing conclusion, but still similar conclusion. Let's see where we're at here. Looks to me, if we've got the right one here, I want to get part one here before I get going. This is part one. Or is it part three or part what? Because hopefully, this, unfortunately, this with this, I haven't found a complete recording. So we're going to have to listen to parts. And one of the things that's going to happen too, folks, is I'm going to have to leave you pretty soon. I'll get my son. So hopefully this will just continue running. They won't interrupt us too much. If it stops for any reason, it's because they're changing to part two. Or they have disconnected me and the show and hopefully it will come back on so wait a couple minutes and hopefully it will come back on normally I have to do it manually to get reconnected especially now that we're going to be talking about uh, some pretty we're going to be listening to some very bigoted racist stuff here um, good chance it will knock us out so anyways listen to it with an open mind have some compassion on the man the man is foolish full of hate thinks he's got it all figured out because he is a historian and he's got it all, you know, uh, he knows the true history of what's going on, but of course he's bent his bias to a point where he can't see the whole truth. So, anyways, listen to what he has to say. example where because of usury the wealth has been concentrated in so few hands that these people can now buy the politicians that have created a political system that is totally unresponsive 
to the needs of the overwhelming majority of the American people. And that is causing a reaction. Now, the reaction has to become conscious of what the causes are and come up with a program. It has, that hasn't happened yet. And the main, I think the main roadblock in discourse is this taboo about talking about Jews. You can't address the issue. If you're conservative, you're upset about pornography and abortion and gay marriage. And if you're, if you're a liberal, you're upset about the wars in the Middle East and you're upset about the banking system and the looting of uh, the manufacturing base of the United States. Well, there's one group of people that uh, has all these things in common. And if we can't address that group of people, that group's a pernicious influence on our culture, we're never going to get anywhere. There has been precedent. The Catholic Church has had a long track record of dealing with a Jewish minority in a Christian culture. And the name of that precedent is called Sico Judeus Non. And basically, no one has the right to harm the Jew, but on the other hand, the Jew does not have the right to corrupt your culture. That's a modus of envy, I think, that needs to be brought back, and we need to have that discussion again. And we need to break through these taboos, because so far we haven't succeeded in making a dent in anything. They can subvert all of these institutions, and we can't even say who is doing the subverting. We can't even address the people who are doing the subverting. It's got to change. You cannot understand history the history of the West, beginning with the time of Christ to the present day, unless you understand the role of the Jew as the protagonist of anti-Logos. When St. John wrote the Gospel in Greek, he had to incorporate Greek philosophy. Greek Sorry about the pause there, but I do want to say something about what you just said there, because it's very profound, and it's true. You can't understand your history, unless you understand the role of the Jew as the antagonist in history, right? Or the protagonist, I can't remember what he said. Maybe should just back up just a second, I'm trying to do two things at once. So it says you can't understand history of the West beginning with the time of Christ unless you understand the role of the Jews as the protagonist against anti-logos, the Word of God, Jesus Christ. I'm, I want to uh, suggest knowing who the Roman Empire is, what its power has been for so long, and how deliberate how it has been created deliberately that the role of the Jew would become the antagonist to the Roman Empire. They took advantage of this situation. You see? They're taking advantage of it, exploiting it. We're talking the Roman Empire now, folks. You know, we're talking, uh, if they really wanted to wipe out, say, all the Jews in Europe, World War II, one, whatever, they could have done it easily. It's self-serving for them to perpetuate this whole division between Jew and Romanism because they're so much alike, first of all. And secondly, 
They don't want you to focus on Rome. Get it? They don't want you to focus on Rome. I'm not giving Jewry a break. I'm not saying that they don't have a role in all the uh, deception, corruption, uh, their role in cultural communism, uh, their role in so many different ways. But there's a reason why they're still around. Because Rome has had the capacity. Uh, even when I look at World War II, they killed tens of millions, hundreds of millions of Protestants, gypsies, uh, gays, uh, Eastern Orthodox, Muslims. Do you think they didn't have the ability to kill more than a few thousand, million Jews? Come on. They didn't want to. They have a use for them. A scapegoat. That's their role. And same token, they're willing to do that. Why is that? Because they don't have Christ in their heart. That's what it comes down to. To understand the role of the Jew as the protagonist of anti-Logos. When St. John wrote the Gospel in Greek, he had to incorporate Greek philosophy. Greek philosophy became part of the Christian patrimony by the very fact that he wrote Greek, in Greek. And so when you say in the first sentence of the St. John's Gospel, ein arche, ein ha logos. In the beginning, there was logos. In a sense, that's the great metaphysical statement that we have to understand here. We are all creatures of logos, and it says logos created us. And it's up to us to find out our situation with vis-a-vis Logos. Greek philosophy was integrated into Christianity by the writing of uh, St. John's Gospel. And the word then in the bigger picture is reason. Logos is eternal. There's no Logos pre-Christ or post-Christ. It's the same Logos. It is eternal. And it takes energy to reject Logos. And I'm saying that's the job of Jewish leaders is to keep these people all together rejecting Logos. A contemporary example of this, the Cohen Brothers film, A Serious Man, is a good example about the tyranny of the rabbi over the Jewish people. They understand it intuitively. Okay, I've got to stop this again. I hate, I hate to do this. The Cohen Brothers film, uh, it's the same Logos. Um, yeah, um, he just said something really profound that supports what I just said. Their role is what? Let's hear what he has to say again. I know I need to get going here, but it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty interesting. He's giving away the truth, but he's not telling you the whole truth, you see. It's, you know, this is how mis, uh, misinformation or disinformation works. It's not necessarily what you say, but what you don't say. So we listen to him again. He's saying their role is what? They had a role. They have a role in the Roman Empire. What is their role? And it takes energy to reject Logos. And I'm saying that's the job of Jewish leaders is to keep these people all together rejecting Logos. A contemporary... Hear that? The, the role of the Jewish leaders... Is what? Let's try that again. My mind's kind of fragmented right now, trying to get things going here. So here we go. And I'm saying that's 
the job of Jewish leaders is to keep these people all together rejecting Logos. So the, the, role, the job, the role of Jewish leaders is to keep all these people together, rejecting the logos. Get it? Who actually benefits the most from this? Okay, ultimately it's Satan. But we know the dragon gives its power to the Roman Empire. Who benefits the most? The Talmudic Jews in around the Jewish influence in Western culture, who benefits the most? Is it the Jews? Really? Or is it their handlers? A contemporary example of this, the Coen Brothers film, A Serious Man, is a good example about the tyranny of the rabbi over the Jewish people. They understand it intuitively that the rabbi is the enemy of the Jewish people because the rabbi is the roadblock between the Jewish mind and Logos. The rabbi is the representative of Talmud, which is the hate speech that keeps Jews separated from Logos. In any human context, the people are going to respond to the truth, to reality, and that is Logos. The Jew is in a special circumstance. Every Jew has to face this in one way or another. You have to face the fact of, who am I? Do I fit in with the group that they say I belong to? And a lot of people say no. Israel Shamir is one of them. He was in an artillery fight. He was serving in the Israeli army. He thought, wait a minute, who, who, who am I working for here? Gilad Atzmai. I could go down the line, all the way back through history. Jews wake up to Logos, and either they... Follow Logos to the extent that it is possible. And I'm saying, as a Christian, the fullest extent possible would become to accept baptism and accept Jesus Christ as the Logos, the incarnate. But there are all sorts of intermediary stages. And the crucial thing is, am I going to accept Logos and follow it wherever it goes, the truth, or am I going to become part of this operation because of the material benefits that accrue from being part of this operation? That's the fundamental question, I think. You cannot understand history, the history of the West, beginning with the time of Christ to the present day, unless you understand the role of the Jew as the protagonist of anti-Logos. This is exactly what Friedrich Romick said in his book, Der Sinn der Geschichte, The Meaning of History. As soon as you say that there is a meaning in history, this is what the meaning has to be. This is the only possible meaning of history. His book is an attack on positivism, which says there is no meaning in history. It says history is meaningless. And no one believes that, ultimately, I think. Everyone believes that there's a, a meaning to history. But the only, really, the only candidate that can fulfill this is the, is the conflict, I think, between Jesus Christ and the Jews true meaning of history, because it is expanded now from that small beginning to encompass everything on earth. There's, in a sense, there's not a culture on earth that is not, has not been dragged into this conflict. Take China, for example, that had a culture that existed long before the uh, culture of the West. They were dragged into this via Karl Marx.
now via Milton Friedman, who is the successor, you know, the new architect of uh, the economic system in uh, China. 30-some years after the death of Christ, the revolutionary spirit reaches its, its fruition, and uh, there's an uprising in Palestine, and they rise up against the Roman conquerors, and it ends in disaster for the uh, Jewish people. The uh, Jewish uh, revolutionaries hold out at Masada, at this mountain redoubt, and they commit suicide. That's not the end, though. Sixty years after that, another Jewish revolutionary rises up, and this man's name is Simon Bar Kokhba. He is successful in driving the Romans from Palestine for a certain period of time, and then gradually the Romans cut them off from the sea, and they take over one city at a time, and they basically start to starve them to death, so that they're now holed up in Jerusalem. At this point, a rabbi, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, uh, recognizes that the Romans are going to win, so he gets himself smuggled out in a shroud. He goes to uh, the uh, Roman general and says, I'm a friend of Rome. Please grant me uh, one wish. I want to start school. This is the man who starts Judaism. This is modern Judaism, because what happened in 70 was that the temple was, was destroyed. You cannot have Judaism without a temple, without a priesthood, and without sacrifice. That all was destroyed then, and so you have to reconstitute Judaism, and so it's this new entity that is younger than Christianity, not older than Christianity, and that is what gets started. And at that point, the Jewish people are dispersed, throughout the Roman Empire and eventually take up their abode in two main places, which are the enemies of Rome, uh, the successor of the Roman Empire, the enemies of Christendom, which would be Turkey in the east and Spain in the west, and then take up positions of power, uh, generally at this point, in anti-Christian countries like uh, Turkey and uh, Moorish Spain. Rome was ba a culture based on usury. It was capitalism before there was capitalism. And capitalism is state-sponsored usury. So usury was enforced in the Roman Empire, and the Jews did not bring it there. The Jews got involved in usury primarily during the Middle Ages as a crucial factor in history. It was the Middle Ages because Christians were forbidden to take usury on loans. And so what you have is a long, complicated process during which the Christians use the Jews. Now, Florence under Cosimo de' Medici. Florence was a proto-capitalist culture where the oligarchs appropriated surplus labor, surplus value from the laborers, which meant that the laborers were not getting paid a decent wage. So what did Cosimo do? He put the Jews into Florence to lend the workers the money that their employers were not paying. Something similar to what happened in the United States in the 1970s when the wages started to go down, the credit card appeared uh, to give the worker the illusion that he had money which he did not have. So it was that, that kind of bondage. And the Jew at this point learned predatory uh, Jewish financial behavior, which is usually with Uzura, with Uzura, no man the house of good stone. 
1239, when St. Raymond of Penaforte introduced Nicholas Donan to Pope Gregory IX. And Gregory IX was stunned. He had never heard, the church had never known that there was a Talmud. But the written Talmud had been in existence for 600 years. church didn't know about it. And so he said, this is awful that they would have these type of blasphemies in this book, that the, the Blessed Mother was a whore, that the Father of Jesus Christ was a Roman soldier, that Jesus Christ is now buried up to his ears in excrement, burning excrement in hell. This is, cannot be tolerated in Christian society. So he turned to Raymond of Pena Forte and he said, I want you to put this book on trial. And if it's found guilty, burn it. And I want you to dedicate your order to the conversion of the Jews and the Moors. And what that led then to Thomas Aquinas' Summa Contra Gentiles, Raimondo Martini's Pugio Fidei Adversus Judeos et Maura. It was the most successful conversion campaign in the history of the church, I have to say, or certainly one of them. They either converted or they had left and gone to Poland. In a sense, you could say, well, they were forced. There was an element of coercion there. And that's one of the most tragic histories, uh, tragic chapters in the history that I wrote, because what you saw from a theological point of view, the minute the Catholic Church understood that there was such a thing as a Talmud. They worked for the conversion of the Jews because they understood this is a totally wicked ideology. It is an anti-Christian ideology. To understand the crux of the matter, you have to go back to Alexander VI, which many people consider the worst pope of the history of papacy. He was a Spaniard. The Renaissance papacy was decadent. It was carnal. It was involved in the accumulation of wealth. And the reform in the church came through the mendicant orders, the, the Dominicans and the Franciscans. And the great Dominican preacher at this time was Savonarola, who showed up in Florence and denounced sodomy and usury, just as Dante had denounced sodomy and usury in Florence 200 years before that. The papacy had to respond, and the papacy, because Savonarola hated the papacy, and because he was hoping that the king of France would come in and depose the pope, Alexander VI turned on Savonarola and basically connived in his death. He was murdered. 
by the uh, citizens of Florence. I think that was the crucial turning point. The church, the papacy should have joined in with this reform. They should have stopped usury dead in its tracks at this point. Because they did not, the next time the, the church did not stop being corrupt. And the next time the protest came, it was Luther. And this time, it was not going to be an intra-jurist battle. Because the aristocracy saw its chance to steal church property and confer on Luther the status of state church in exchange. And that, once that happened, the church's police power was broken, and that began the rise of capitalism, what we call capitalism now, which is basically state-sponsored usury. With Uzura, sin against nature is thy bread evermore stale rags. There was this still this corruption in the papacy. There was. There's no question about it. You also had the rise of German nationalism at this time. There were people who felt that gold, remember, gold is money. That's the only source of wealth. Gold is pouring out of Germany into Rome, and we are there depleting. You also had a group of people, the, the minor aristocracy, Ulrich von Hutten, who's one of the leaders of the Reformation. It's the minor aristocracy is being frozen out of the picture by people like the Fugger family, the bankers. The aristocracy is bound up with land. And you've got all these guys who are paying you in bushels of grain and you need money. And you're frozen out of the money operation and the leadership is being taken over by these banking families in Augsburg like the Fugger. So you've been disenfranchised. And that becomes a disenfranchised uh, aristocracy is the best, probably the best uh, revolutionary cadre you can have. And that's precisely what Ulrich von Hutten was. So you add that to Luther's situation, which is exactly the situation with the Hussites, some monks who were carnal. Uh, Zelewski in uh, Defenestration of Prague, a monk like Luther, a monk like Thomas Munzer, these were people who hated the evangelical councils. They didn't want to live that way anymore. They were sick of celibacy, sick of fasting, all this type of stuff. Uh, the classical world knew about usury, and all of these leaders, the intellectual leaders of the classical world, whether uh, the Hebrew writers or the Greeks, knew that it was toxic and you had to prohibit it. The most hated, and with the greatest reason, is usury, which makes a gain out of money itself and not from the natural object of it. For money was intended to be used in exchange, but not to increase at interest. And this term, interest, which means the birth of money from money, is applied to the breeding of money because the offspring resembles the parent. Wherefore, of all modes of getting wealth, this is the most unnatural Aristotle, 350 B.C., but or the empires all practiced usury, and the Roman Empire was the classic instance of a usurious empire. A usury then concentrated wealth into fewer and fewer hands. Uh, it uh, reduced uh, workers to slaves that would work on huge agricultural operations called latifundia, and it uh, indirectly brought about the collapse of the Roman Empire. Christianity arose to fill the gap left by the collapse of the Roman Empire. And oftentimes they simply took over 
the whatever was left of the mechanism of the Roman Empire. And so diocese is a word that's uh, a Roman designation of an administrative unit. And it's obviously a Catholic designation of a unit. But the difference was that Christianity understood the value of labor in a way that no usury empire can, because there are fundamentally two choices. Either you think that money can copulate, then that's all you need, because you can just put two coins together and they will copulate and you'll end up with three coins. If you don't believe that, then you have to accept the, the, the premise that labor is the source of value. And this is precisely what the church did. The people who saved civilization were the Benedictines largely, the Benedictine monasteries, and their motto was ora et labora. And for the first time in human history, you had a, a culture that honored labor. And so for a thousand years, you had a labor-based economy where the monastery would store up the values that are required by labor and concentrate them and put them to social use. This is unprecedented. It's, it's, in a sense, a unique period of history because it was the period of history where the Catholic Church had hegemony over the culture, total hegemony. This was also a period with, during which economic exchange almost went out, almost ceased. And in some areas, there was basically not a monetary economy. So in places like Venice, you always, it still was a monetary economy, never stopped being that. But in the interior of places like the Holy Roman Empire, you had um, a, an economy where you owed your lord labor or the, pro, the produce of your labor.
England remained too difficult, and uh, the Spanish Netherlands, the Habsburgs, could not get the, the entire Spanish Netherlands back until Holland, the northern provinces, became an outpost of the new religion. The new religion, I think, is what Karl Marx said it was. I think Protestantism is the worship of mammon. It's Christians acting like Jews, which means collecting usury on loans. The legitimatization of usury began not with Luther, but with Calvin, who said that if it was a productive loan, then you could charge. In other words, if a businessman was borrowing money, it was different than a poor man, and so on and so forth. Has led to the situation that we're in today. Basically, once the church's police power was broken, once they did not solve the usury problem, these outposts were created and they had basically usury based economies. And they came over here, in other words, the Puritans, when they were expelled, when that fell through in England, they came over here, and so we had America then involved. Henry VIII was one of these wretched monsters who was just nothing but appetite and got into trouble with his finances because he was in debt. And the temptation, having seen the example of, uh, of uh, what happened in Germany, decided he could do the same thing in, in England, even though he was opposed to the Lutherans and tried to create some type of via media, like halfway between Catholicism and, and uh, Protestantism, Lutheranism. So basically, he authorized the, the seizure and looting of the monasteries. One of the reasons it succeeded as well as it did is he had to cut in a lot of the nobility, cut them in on the looting operation. And so there were certain families that became fabulously wealthy by the looting of church property. So basically, what you had was 900 years of stored labor. Overnight ripped from the, uh, the matrix where it was put to the social, social good and stolen and looted and put into the hands of thieves. And so what you had was basically a criminal conspiracy in charge of Europe now. And lots of criminals in on it, and so therefore it proved, uh, created a kind of criminal caste. Let us never tolerate outrageous conspiracy theories concerning the attacks of September the 11th. Malicious lies that attempt to shift the blame away from the terrorists themselves, away from the guilty. And lots of criminals in on it, and so therefore it proved, it created a kind of criminal caste in Europe that would uh, now be dead set against everything that the Catholic Church stood for because of the guilt that they incurred from this theft. Because of the guilt that the English ruling class has been bearing for all these years because all of their wealth and all of their power came from the looting of the Catholic Church. Enormous amounts of wealth were destroyed. I mean, Cobbett goes into this. These prayer books, these missiles, they had gold and jewels encrusted. People just bust in, they rip the, rip the cover off, rip the jewels off, throw the thing, this illuminated manuscript in the mud, the horses trample on it, and they're off to the next monastery to loot out. Hundreds of years, centuries of, the, uh, of stored labor and acquired wealth gone within a period of a year or so. And then, of course, the people who got a hold of it uh, then wanted more, and they started, there was this big land speculation, and people were 
uh, taking out mortgages on the land, and that's when the users came in and then started to concentrate the fuel of your hands. And misery across the board because the people who lived, who benefited from these properties were no longer able to benefit from them. For things like purgatory societies in England where a certain man would bequeath a certain property, piece of land, to the church. The church would set up a purgatory society where if you, if you prayed for this man's soul, you could graze your sheep on his land, or you could use this land for something or other. Social use of the land, all of this was totally abrogated. The peasants, uh, the, the agricultural class was driven from the land. The land was enclosed. And uh, sheep were raised because that was big business uh, at this time because there was this voracious appetite for English wool in places like Florence to make cloth. And so you created uh, people uh, like Cobbett and Belloc and Chesterton and Marx, all across the political spectrum, would say this was the beginning of the creation of the proletariat in England. It never, in a sense, never went away. Never went away. And so what you had in the 19th century, uh, after economic advance, after industrialism, after all these things, you realize these people are permanently miserable. And nothing seems to change their lot. And it gave rise to socialism, uh, which uh, Pesh refers to. Wherever you have the disease of capitalism, you are going to have the, the purulent boil of socialism as the manifestation that the, the body, the political body is sick. And so what you had then was socialism as the example. And then you go to England and you see, you know, large areas of indigenous, you know, people are not foreigners there buying lottery tickets, you know. <laughs> going to soccer games, soccer hoodlums. The police and what appears to be a section of the Manchester United support involved the proletariat continued and never really emerged from that kind of degradation. The state, in a sense, funneled the more money because of socialism, but it never really recovered. England never recovered. So all that wealth was taken, stolen, concentrated, and turned into a kind of predatory economic system that we, we now call capitalism. It's the spirit that counts. It's not the, the flesh. There's always going to be some type of manifestation. This is the problem with trying to identify Jews with a particular political direction, especially in America, like Jews in the 30s. They're all communists. So how can they be conservative? Well, the, Jew, the neoconservative movement was more revolutionary than the Communist Party of the 1930s in terms of actually the implementation of Trotsky's principles of actually going out and conquering other people. It's just that they attach this revolutionary fervor to the United States instead of to the Soviet Union. That's why it's important to identify the spirit and not a particular manifestation. You can't mistake the part for the whole. Capitalism, according to Heinrich Pesch, is state-sponsored usury. And it's the uh, appropriation, the systematic appropriation of all surplus value. 
So the first reform would be to eliminate usury. And that would be the alternative. And that you know, One of the places that has eliminated usury is the Islamic world, and Islamic banking has banking without usury, where you can have fees instead of compound interest. So that's the simplest, simplest answer I can come up with. A history of capitalism is different than a history of economic development, even though they do have similarities, because capitalism is a predatory ideology that preys on uh, legitimate economic activity through usury primarily. And we've reached the point where people, if you say you're against capitalism, they say, well, don't you believe in economic development or don't you believe in you know, science or don't you believe, whatever. We have been so brainwashed that we've, we've uh, confused the disease with the, uh, with the person. The other aspect is that whenever capitalism runs into trouble, they lose. In America, they lose pension funds. That is always the first thing. And so you always have a capitalist saying, well, we can't afford Social Security anymore. Well, wait a minute. Why can't we can afford all these wars, but we can't afford Social Security? This is the pension to root, root labor. Usury concentrates wealth into fewer and fewer hands. And so a group like the Jews, that is always a small minority, will be interested in strategies that will concentrate wealth. But they've also had centuries of experience in dealing with it, from small-time stuff to big-time stuff. And so they would naturally gravitate towards this. They would become, they have become experts in using these covert means of taking over the culture, using finance in a predatory way uh, that is covert, and so most people don't see them as being involved in it. You have to have trust. And I'm saying that this is, this is the problem with, with Jewish involvement in finance. They're taught not to trust the Goyims. They're, they're taught to exploit the Goyims. This is, this is what they learned from the Talmud. Eventually, through usury, uh, they take control, and uh, there's no trust in the society, and the society breaks down. And that's where we stand now. I mean, investment, do you, would you feel confident investing your, your money in a, some type of Wall Street operation and not feel that it was going to be stolen from you? This is the problem. This is what's causing the, the breakdown of the, of the economic system now. We have to clarify, what is a Jew? Okay, we've always tried to theological basis. Now, when you say a Jew, the Jews do X. I'm talking about the Jewish people. The Jewish people are an organized entity whose constitution is the Talmud, which is anti-Logos. It is a way of keeping Jewish people from the truth and keeping Jewish people from Christ. So what you're talking about is a Jewish control mechanism. The Jewish leaders keep the Jewish people captive in order to push their agenda. Israel Shamir said that uh, Jewish people are the human shields for the Jewish leaders. Totally debilitating. It's totally debilitating. And we, it's so debilitating, we don't even know we're blind. That's the problem. It's like, it's like conducting a military campaign and you're firing your artillery into uh, fake tanks. Well, you're not, you're not firing at the target. You don't even know what the target is. It's been so suppressed that I'm saying we have to go back at least 100 years. In uh, Culture Wars, we're going to publish the three-part series that appeared in Chivota Catolica in 1890 on the Jewish question. 
because that's when all of Europe was dealing with the Jewish question because largely of the predatory nature of Jewish finance in the 19th century. So I'm saying it's totally debilitating. We, we don't have this vocabulary. We can't talk about it. We are always engaging in something like uh, you have to call shadow boxing. Is it the liberals who are the problem or is it the conservatives who are the problem? Is it the Democrats who are the problem or is it the Republicans? Well, to give you some reference point, after President Obama announced his initiative about the, going back to the 67 borders, the borders of Israel and Palestine should be based on the 1967 lines with mutually agreed swaps. Within one day, Benjamin Netanyahu showed up in this country, and the entire Congress of the United States gave him 29 standing ovations, a totally disgusting act of groveling before a foreign potentate that you would think would be impossible in a country like the United States. But they did it. And not only did they do that, they were told to do it by IPAC. And they were told, these congressmen, uh, that if you don't do it, you will never get any money. Now, what is that a Republican issue or is that a Democrat issue? No, that's a Jewish issue. And if we don't have the vocabulary to deal with it, we're crippled. And, we, and that's exactly the situation. We're crippled. The government is totally unresponsive to the people of the United States. Thank you. 
the problem was that it was Jewish predatory behavior. You had the Jews involved, you had demi-Jews who were known as Calvinists, and they held the moral law in contempt. And so they were always involved in some type of theft or some type of exploitation, and they annoyed everyone, including the English, who then went to war with Holland and in, in, in effect defeated them. Cromwell passed the Navigation Acts in 1651, which basically cut back on the Dutch ability to uh, ship, to, uh, to be shipping magnates, and uh, they won the war, and so Holland just sort of received it. But I think it was this general sense of excess. They went too far. It was just too, you can't have successful commerce, you can't have success on a successful economic system based on theft. So capitalism is by definition always at war with success because someone is always plotting how to steal something from someone else. And in a sense, that's, that's what the, the system of that, if you take it all together, is called mercantilism. And the big reaction came by the end of the 18th century when people like Adam Smith would say, this is self-defeating behavior. This, this, this is wrong with it. The physiocrats started at first, but then Adam Smith, and that became the, uh, the beginning of modern economics, where you realize that, okay, gold is not wealth. Okay, and there are certain behaviors that are self-defeating. All these tariffs, if they're taken to excess, they become self-defeating. It's better if we can do what we're good at and trade with other people, and that will be the best uh, avenue to wealth. So, in effect, in effect the, the Dutch, because of their excess, because of this excess in Jewish predatory economic behavior, overplayed their hand, and they were defeated by a superior military power, and then they went into a state of... Eclipsed, I think, ever since then. You don't hear about, you know, New Amsterdam anymore. That was a Dutch colony. They just went into eclipse. The Jews were heavily involved in the early colonization attempts in America. But most of the Jews we're talking about were Sephardic, we're talking about Sephardic Jews who had come from Spain and, and Portugal. And these were where the colonies were. And so the Jews were involved in commerce already with the Levant. And so now they just headed off in a different direction. When they moved to Holland, they still had these contacts, and they were going back and forth to places, usually in, in South America. Uh, Jews were also very prominently uh, present in non-Dutch parts of the Caribbean. This is like Barbados. This is like Jamaica. St. Thomas. Many of the other islands as well. The uh, first Masonic Lodge was in Newport because it was basically Jewish uh, traders who had ships going there. Sure enough, they knocked me off. And uh, they played a huge role in commerce, and commerce at that point was basically a, a, the triangular trade where you'd get slaves and you'd ship them over in those ships and then you'd drop them off in the Caribbean and then you'd get sugar or rum and then you'd take that north to New England and then you'd get wood and turpentine and tar, and then you ship that back to England, so you go back and forth, and then you take manufacturing good, manufactured goods from England and go back down again, and so you have to keep the ships full going around that way, and the Jews were heavily involved in that. The Jewish involvement in the African slave trade 
begins, as far as I can tell, long before the actual slave trade across the Atlantic itself. The transatlantic slave trade has its immediate origins around about 1441, when Portuguese sailors landed on the West African coast and kidnapped a few Africans, brought them back to Europe. Africans were brought back to Europe, to Portugal and to Spain as part of that particular trade for several years. Columbus, of course, arrived in the Americas in 1492, approximately half a century later. In 1502, the first Africans were brought to the Caribbean. The Caribbean is where the transatlantic slave trade begins. For over 100 years before Africans were brought as slaves to this country, the United States of America, Africans were being brought across the Atlantic to the Caribbean, to places like Hispaniola, the island which today is shared by Haiti and the Dominican Republic and, and, and to other places as well. Jewish involvement then in that transatlantic slave trade precedes by many, many years, perhaps by a thousand years, the actual beginnings of the transatlantic slave trade. The earliest multinational corporation involved in the Atlantic slave trade was something called the Dutch West India Company. Even in this early period, globalization was already a fairly entrenched phenomenon. The slave trade was a great example of globalization. Here you have the Dutch West India Company, out of Holland, of course, which went to West Africa. They had their own private army. They established forts on the West African coast. They had their own colonization you know, um, you know, via private enterprise. It was like privatized colonization. These were like surrogate governments almost, these um, chartered companies as they were often called. So the Dutch West India Company in the 1600s then was the pioneer in this kind of multinational globalized prosecution of the slave trade. And apparently a large number of the shareholders, the stockholders in this Dutch West India Company were Jews. The Jews had been chased out of Portugal and Spain. They had been chased out of all kinds of places. They, they found some respite from their wanderings in Holland. They became an influential factor in Holland. And I've seen a variety of figures. This too is an area of some controversy. I have seen estimates varying from 25% to 50% concerning the, 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 the stake of Jewish uh, stockholders in the Dutch West India Company. But suffice it to say that they were an important element in the Dutch West India Company, which was the preeminent entity carrying on the slave trade in the early period. The Dutch West India Company was responsible for, for, for importing you know, the earliest slaves to places like Brazil, to some parts of the Caribbean, um, either directly or indirectly, I think, to, to this country as well in, in, a, in a very early period in, in the 17th century. In many areas in the Americas, Jews were a dominant element in the slave trade. In Brazil, for example, in the 17th century, Jews were a dominant element in the slave trade. They owned a large number of the plantations. They were often very um, importantly positioned in other aspects, not necessarily the plantation aspects, but things like, say, the importation of slaves, things like the warehousing of slaves, things like the auctioning of slaves, things like the provisioning of slaves, things like manning slave ships, provisioning slave ships. In New England, for example, at the height of, of the um, Atlantic slave trade, Rum became a major, a major economic uh, venture in, in New England, places like, like, like Providence, Rhode Island, places like uh, Boston and so on. And rum was a major factor in the slave trade because rum was one of the major items of trade, one of the major 
uh, items that slave ships carried when they went to West Africa to trade and exchange for, for slaves and so on. At one point, all the rum distilleries in Boston were, were owned by Jews. I think there were something like 18 rum distilleries. So in all of these areas, both directly and in terms of ancillary um, industries feeding the slave trade, Jews were, 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 were very, very important. Yeah, anybody wanted to buy it. 
they had contacts in the East. And gradually, as this campaign of conversion took off in the West, the Jews who did not want to convert gradually gravitated toward the East. And at this point, it was Poland that became what they called the uh, Paradisus Judeorum, the paradise of the Jews, beginning in around the 13th century, which is about when the campaign started to kick off, the, ca- the conversion campaign. And so the group, Jews gradually migrated there. Gradually, they were given rights, and in a sense, this, is, this was the beginning of the, of the problem. They were given special status, and that status allowed them. They exploited that status through the, their main weapon was usury. With Uzura, with Uzura hath no man the house of good stone, each block cut smooth and well-fitting. By Uzura, Karamas is unbridled. One of the articles by Ivo Poganowski that we published had a picture of the, uh, the Jew and the Polish peasant. And the Jew is sitting behind his desk and there's a big bottle of vodka there, and the Polish peasant is scratching his head. Well, what we're talking about here is the Jew has lent him money, and the Polish pe- and he's poured, a, he's poured him some vodka to make him more, you know, likely to sign on the dotted line, and he's scratching his head because he can't figure out what compound interest is all about, and how he keeps paying him money, and it never seems to pay down. So the Jew took over Poland, and Poland began to expand, because on this borrowed money and they expanded into the east and they expanded into Cossack territory. And basically everywhere the Jew went, he alienated the, the local population until the reaction came and that was the Shnomitsky uh, pogroms of 1648. So for basically a 400-year period, they, they took part in the expansion of Poland and alienated everyone and there was this huge reaction where Shmelnitsky was a Cossack who had been cheated out of wife and money by a Jew and organized the resistance and it was a violent resistance and now you found the Poles defending the Jews to some extent but it was the end, the beginning of the end of Poland. The Polish ruling class was land, a land-based aristocracy. And land-based aristocracies always have trouble with money. In a sense, the feudal period in Europe was basically you owned the land and you had people on the land and those people owed you X number of bushels of grain. But you need money right now. So how are you going to transfer those long-term prospects into short-term cash? Well, that's where the Jew came in, in terms of lending money. This was the case much later in Poland than let's say in Italy, which was the forefront of economic development in Europe, the city-states in Italy. So this is basically how they took control of the Polish aristocracy, by lending money. They they did the same thing in England. They landed aristocracy money, and if the Jew lends you money, you become the slave of the Jew. The classic instance of this was Winston Churchill, whose family was deeply uh, involved, and he became a representative of Jewish interest because they they, uh, forgave his debts. That's how they got their hold over the Polish aristocracy. Because the Polish aristocracy felt that they could not uh, engage in uh, industrial or 
They couldn't, uh, for example, uh, make whiskey that was beneath the dignity of the Polish aristocracy. So they would give licenses to the Jews. Well, the Jews exploited it as a, as a way of taking control of the peasantry. They used alcohol as one of their cultural weapons of cultural warfare. And that was a constant tradition among the Jews and was brought over here and it's dealt with in the Henry Ford's International Jew. There's a chapter on nigger gin in Henry Ford's book, which is basically this alcohol with some white woman or dress hanging over her shoulder that was sold to the black population as a way of exploiting them and sort of getting this. This was the tradition that they had brought over from Poland where the, the Polish aristocracy had simply licensed them as alcohol producers. And the final moment came at the end of the uh, 18th century when Poland was wiped off the face of the map by the three empires, Prussia, Austria, and Russia. So they basically had the partition of Poland. This meant that all of those Jews in the Paradisus Jude Orum, where they had all of these rights in Poland, were now suddenly found themselves on the western border of Russia in a country that did not believe in equal rights for anyone. It was totally anti-enlightenment. I mean, it was, it was, the, you know, it was a throwback to another era. And so as a result, uh, the Jews were unhappy. I mean, very unhappy. And you see to this day this ancestral hatred of Russia among the Jews. And the collapse of the Soviet Union Paul Wolfowitz announces, we're going to put six divisions in Estonia. Well, wait a minute, Paul. What are we talking about here? The war is over. It's something that goes real deep, this Jewish hatred of Russia. And it began with this group of people now isolated. They're not citizens. They are not going to be allowed to have the rights of citizens. They're isolated in these shtetl in a group uh, area called the Pale of the Settlement. And the crucial issue is, this is precisely the border with the West. So the Jews now become involved in smuggling, uh, revolutionary activity, uh, all sorts of technological advances like dynamite. The first person who brought dynamite into Russia was a Jew. And he brought it into Russia to blow up the railroad tracks that the Tsar was traveling on. And this is uh, beginning at this point, Russia has a huge uh, revolutionary problem on, on its hands, uh, which it could not solve. It tried to solve in a humane fashion. Solzhenitsyn uh, uh, brings this out in his book, 200 Years Together, which has not been translated into English because of Jewish veto, a rabbi vetoed this. So you cannot read this book in English. You know? This is a Nobel Prize winner, one of the greatest writers of the 20th century, and his book is not going to be translated into English because Jews have veto power over the public in the United States. And in this book, Solzhenitsyn talks about the, the problems from the beginning. From the beginning. The beginning of the partition of Russia, Russia had swallowed something that it could not digest. And so the, uh, uh, the Tsar hears that there are reports of... Uh, Starvation in the Ukraine. Well, wait a minute. Ukraine is the breadbasket of Europe. How is it that people are starving? What's the answer to that question? The answer is the Jews. 
the Jews had uh, lent money to the Ukrainian farmers, and so the farmers couldn't pay it back, and so they owned the grain harvest, and they were diverting all the grain to alcohol rather than to bread, and people were starving to death in the richest agricultural area of Russia. And so the so Tsar, well, we have to deal with this. Well, let's turn the Jews into farmers. Well, that failed, because the Jew is not going to work as a farmer, because farming is hard work. And so you give the Jew a plow, what's he going to do? He'll sell it, you know. Any farm influence, he sells it and tries to then take that money and parlay that into something else. So that failed. And so as a result, you have this increasing revolutionary ferment in the tale of the settlement that leads to uh, the assassination of the Tsar in 1881. in St. Petersburg, where he fell on the ground. They built this elaborate uh, Russian Orthodox church, the church of the state of And it's an anomaly because it looks like the Disneyland version of a Russian Orthodox church. In the middle of the city of St. Petersburg, there's nothing but Greek temples. So it's like this resurgence of Right there in the heart of St. Petersburg. But it didn't work. It didn't work. There was something that, uh, that, that there were, the, 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 the Tsar, the Romanovs, could not come to grips with Jewish revolutionary behavior. Interesting so far, at least for me. Uh, what's interesting is how he, E. Michael Jones, almost said it was almost like a throwback to the Dark Ages, didn't he? But he stopped himself. I guess now what's going on. But always remember when you're listening to this, this is a true part of the story, the history of humanity. But it isn't the complete story. And the Jesuits in Rome were taking advantage of this whole situation, now weren't they? They certainly did. <laughs> so let's be honest about things. And this, so there's, you know, they see the whole picture, at least for me. You know, you can talk all you want about the Jesuits, and it's a very important thing to understand and know who are the head of the, the, this, uh, the dragon is, the uh, spider that's creating the web. But, uh, you know, it's, there is this reality that uh, these, uh, the synagogue of Satan has been in bed with Rome. So now we're talking about that. that but I think what people make the mistake is they hear about the Jews and that's it. They can't look at their own, say the Roman Catholic, can't look at their own institution, if you're Protestant, if you're American, whatever. You can't accept the fact that your group is part of the problem too. But we're going to talk about the Jews today, so not going to be the usual story on this show. But, you know, we're should he listen to it. And uh, certainly he's coming from a 
Roman Catholic bent. He's a propagandist for the church, so he's not, he, he almost let the cat out of the bag. Once again, this classic example of uh, it's not what they say so much what they neglect to say. And uh, yeah, keep on listening to it. And uh, as far as picking up my son, I'm supposed to have picked him up about, uh, I don't know, to pick him up between six and six thirty, but his mom asked to wait until Sunday. Okay, so we'll keep this going. psychologist in the 20th century. Like Franz Boas, he started a school of psychology. Like Franz Boas, he viewed anti-Semitism as an enormous problem. He himself was subjected to anti-Semitism when he was young, as was Franz Boas. And this stayed with him. This was an important part of their psyche, and you can see this in their writings, that they, they viewed uh, the eradication of anti-Semitism as a very important criterion. So at a deep level, psychoanalysis was about developing a theory that could be used to oppose anti-Semitism. Freud consciously viewed himself as someone who was combating Western culture. He viewed himself as a sort of Semitic general fighting Rome. There's some very striking passages in his letters. He identified with Hannibal, who was a Semitic general fighting against Rome. In Jewish thought, Rome is often viewed as the quintessential West. And when they think of Rome, they think of Rome destroying the Second Temple, that uh, Rome fundamentally as this sort of evil Western power. And Freud viewed himself as psychoanalysis was a mechanism of cultural warfare, as it were. Psychoanalysis was sort of flagrantly unscientific. I mean, they didn't even make the pretense of doing a good study of anything. At the time, you know, in the early 20th century, the dominant school in psychology in America and England was behaviorism. You know, and behaviorism, even though I'm not a behaviorist at all, what you have to say about the behaviorists is that they had a strong sense that psychology had to be based on experimentation. Here is little Albert prior to conditioning. As you can see, he is not afraid of the rat. Five days later, we see little Albert after his conditioning. His fear of the rat is readily apparent. Departments of psychology in America and England had this strong empirical sense, and so they criticized psychoanalysis. They went, where's your data? Show me some studies. Even some of Freud's followers very early on uh, became disillusioned with it. They, they didn't see the data. Uh, they started to realize that, these, that psychoanalysis basically is a set of propositions that have been promulgated by leaders, and if you were a follower, you would simply accept these. If you did not accept them, you were simply written out of the movement. So it was not conducted as a normal science. Where it really was, it was important and really dominated was in the area of psychiatry. Psychiatry became dominated by the Freudians, 
But that has disappeared because of the rise of biological psychiatry. I mean, nowadays, when psychiatrists think of depression, they're much more likely to think about what drugs you can use, uh, what parts of the brain are involved in depression. Of course, we didn't have that back in the early 20th century. And so psychoanalysts could say anything they wanted about depression and neurosis. They could make up stories about repressing sex or uh, whatever story they wanted. And uh, that was uh, pretty much accepted. And then you'd bring patients who had neuroses in, you'd talk to them, and um, hopefully they got better. Maybe they didn't. Mostly they didn't. I think the genius of Freud was to develop a sort of metaphor or sort of paradigm that people resonated to automatically. Because, you know, obviously uh, the, uh, the repression of sexuality sort of was an important part of Western culture. If, if I've just started watching the movie Kinsey, which is about Kinsey, the, the sexual reformer. Now, he was not really a Freudian, but you could see that repression of sexuality that was so typical a part of the culture in which he grew up in. I really can't but stay. Where you were concerned about, you know, if masturbation was a sin. In Table 34, Kinsey set out Green's notes on the time it had taken him to masturbate the children to multiple orgasms. In his book, and based primarily on Green's information, Kinsey claimed that children could, with the assistance of an experienced adult, enjoy sexual activity from the moment they were born. It became a sort of rallying point, I think, for the intellectual left. People like Kinsey were sort of certainly greeted by psychoanalysts. And you could see him having problems with his religious environment. His father was a preacher. His father viewed, you know, sex as, as evil, and essentially. And that was part of the zeitgeist at the time. So when Freud, you know, talked about sex as the fundamental basis of all things neurotic, it had a certain surface plausibility. It wasn't ridiculous, uh, I suppose. Uh, it wasn't based on science, but it was based, I think, uh, on a sort of uh, attractive paradigm. This gives you some indication of a predatory attitude that Freud had toward his patients. He had a cartoon that he used to keep in his office, uh, a lion, and under the lion it says, Schon zwölf Uhr Mittag und keiner neighbor. It's already noon and no Negroes. In other words, I'm hungry. I need a Negro to come in here. I need to eat the Negro. Well, who, who's the Negro? Well, that's the patient. And so the best example would be Horace Frink, this uh, doctor from America. He wants to be a psychoanalyst. So he shows up with Freud, and during the course of his psychoanalysis with Freud, he says, uh, I have this sexual attraction toward my patient. Isn't this bad? I mean, isn't it bad if you screw one of your patients? Isn't that unethical? Uh, uh, not to say even beyond the fact that you're married to someone else. Well, what does Freud say? Well, no, he didn't think it was a bad idea. As a matter of fact, he urged Frank to dump his wife and marry this woman because she had a lot of money and then give a significant contribution to the psychoanalytic society. This is an outrageous conflict of interest, an outrageous abuse of the whole idea of medicine, and certainly an abuse of what the psychiatry is, and Freud himself was involved in it. This isn't an abuse. This is the heart of the matter, because psychoanalysis 
is a form of sexual liberation as political control. It's portrayed as medicine because of the influence that the people who want to promote this have over modern culture. Okay, and so you have all sorts of people now disciples of the new psychology. One of them is a man by the name of uh, Yastrov at the University of Wisconsin. This is Heinz's description of what Yastrov was doing at the University of Wisconsin. Yastrov targeted Christianity in a way that Pierce did not. He also used the biblical and rabbinical phraseology of the remnant of Israel when he referred to the dissident few who fight in all times and places for freedom of thought. There will always be a saving remnant, he wrote, who are willing to give up dogma. That's the prime example of the forcible imposition of thought on a community of people. In his course at Wisconsin on the psychology of belief, and in his popular writings, he spoke of, quote, the sad page of history that records the church's techniques of censorship and suppression of thought. Anyways, Freud, you know, he was into uh, channeling and uh, uh, was influenced by the darkness of uh, spiritism, spiritual, spiritualism. And it seems to be a, a, a connection between both uh, the Jesuits and uh, these uh, Thematic Jews, spiritualism. Mysticism. Well, let's see if we can do this. We can get connected again. They sure like to disconnect me a lot. I think they don't like my, my show. <clears throat> they don't like what I, I bring up. <laughs> that seems like a lot of people don't, so. There we go. What's the thing here is that deviance has been redefined. It will be redefined over the course of the century, and what used to be uh, a sin is now a virtue. For example, homosexuality. What used to be an aberration is now normal, and what used to be normal, namely, let's say, the revulsion at homosexuality, is now a thought crime under the regime of political correctness. So a student at Temple University, my alma mater, who objects to the production of Corpus Christi by the university was dragged out and taken to the psychiatric clinic at Temple University Hospital for objecting to a blasphemous homosexual propaganda play. Five days later, we see little Albert after his conditioning. His fear of the rat is readily apparent. Well, this is the essence of political correctness and the essence of what happened during the course of the 20th century. Deviance was redefined as its opposite, deviance is binary, deviance is prohibition. There's never going to be a world without deviance. What you have here is the inversum alaversum, the transvaluation of values where what was good is now bad and what was good is now wicked. This happened in the realm of psychology largely through the efforts of people like Freud 
So you see this as a way of cultural subversion. Freud became the vehicle for cultural subversion and was interested in those particular terms. Jews and Catholics both arrived on the scene at around the same time, largely as a result of a huge amount of migration that took place over the last part of the 19th century and the first part of the 20th century. They both arrived at the time when the Protestant ruling class had simply lost its nerve. Uh, it had lost its ability to determine culture. You can see something like an artifact like uh, the Great Gatsby as an example. Uh, Tom Buchanan is talking about, you know, those people are taken over. You've got to read Stoddard's book about race and this type of stuff. And you have the Gatsby, the Jew, and uh, the narrator, or Fitzgerald himself as the Catholic, both looking to the wasp as a kind of paradigm to emulate at a time when the wasp itself is not really sure of this anymore. A lot of what I'm saying here is taken from a book, Andrew R. Heinze, Jews in the American Soul, Human Nature in the 20th Century, Princeton University Press. Heinze says in his book that Psychology provided a perfect focal point for a culture clash between Jews and Catholics as they moved from the periphery toward the center of society traditionally dominated by Protestants. For many Jews, psychology and Freud represented a path toward a more sophisticated cosmopolitan America. For many Catholics, Freud signified a heretical departure from fundamental religious values. In his book, the culmination of this conflict comes with Archbishop Sheen and Claire Booth-Luce after World War II. Archbishop Sheen was a huge presence in 1950s America. He had a show, a television show, where he went toe-to-toe -to -toe with uh, Milton Berle and beat him in the ratings all the time. He was having a huge effect on the culture. Large numbers of Americans were converting to Catholicism at this point. It was a huge uh, cultural battle, and by the 50s, the mid-50s, it focused on Sigmund Freud. Sheen gave a sermon at St. Patrick's at which he talked about Freud and the confessional, and basically talked about psychoanalysis as a secularized version of the confessional. It caused a huge stir. There was a, a, an article in the American Scholar which accused both uh, Fulton Sheen and Claire Booth-Luce of being anti-Semites because they don't like Sigmund Freud. Now, this is a state-of-the-art uh, battle here that's going on here. What we're talking about here is a takeover, a redefinition, just as Fish and Derrida uh, decades later would engage in a redefinition of discourse, the Jews at this point were engaging largely by the use, through the use of Sigmund Freud in a redefinition of the soul. We're talking about psuche, the Greek word for soul, and so therefore we're talking about psychology, which is the science of the soul. Now, this is classic psychology, okay? This is Greek, and it's Greek. It goes all the way back to people like Euripides and Plato. The classic definition of the soul, or the image of the soul, was the rider on a horse. The rider was reason, the horse was passion, and in many ways the bridle was the will. And so you had the tripartite soul, reason, will, passion, logos, ethos, pathos. And that was the, that was the right rule. Reason ruled passion the way the rider rode a horse. What happened over the course of the 20th century is that that was inverted.
In other words, we had a revolution in psychology that paralleled the later revolution in, in the hermeneutical thought. What you had to do was, in effect, redefine the soul so that it, did, it lost all of its Christian characteristics. You know, this is, it's only Christian in the minds of the Jews that wanted to subvert it. This is not Christian. This is not a Christian soul. It's the Greek soul. It was adopted by Aquinas and by the Catholic Church, but it's basically a Greek idea. Heinze says about this period of time, G. Stanley Hall had a classic work, and it was known as Adolescence, published in 1904. According to Heinze, Hall's work was, quote, saturated in Christian reference. At this point, what happened was a war, a war like the literary critical wars, but this became a psychological, a war over who was going to determine what the soul was. Uh, the leader in this war at this particular time was a, an anthropologist by the name of Franz Boas, a Jew, whose assistant was going to be sort of the leading soldier, sort of the frontal assault on Hall's book, and her name was Margaret Mead. Franz Boas was an uh, intellectual of Jewish extraction. He came from Germany. He became very important in the early 20th century. And the reason he was important was because he was the father of the School of Anthropology. Okay, I'm going to have to leave. I'm going to let the show keep going. Hopefully they won't drop off, uh, drop us off. Uh, if it does, if it stops for any reason, Give it a couple minutes. It's either changing to part five or it's a buffering problem or something. Hopefully it'll come back. Looks like it's coming back about every 30 seconds. So very interesting. I find it very interesting, their perspective on things. And uh, hopefully it will help us in the long run to have a clearer understanding of uh, our world. So here we go. <laughs> that uh, essentially said that race was not important in explaining any differences between any groups of people. His descendants have been people who have pathologized any reference to any concept of race, racial differences, and so on. This is uh, sort of a pillar of the intellectual left in the 20th century. And it's important because he founded the school. They became the heads of the departments of very important universities. So that by the mid-1920s, his students basically dominated the American Anthropological Association, made a very clear ethnic political agenda, at least for the Jews among them. In other words, Franz Bolas was not just a, a sort of intellectual pursuing truth or something like that. He well recognized that he was had a very strong Jewish identity. One of his main um, goals in life, one of his main purposes uh, was to uh, was to promote a this intellectual perspective, which he thought would be important for combating anti-Semitism. You had the sort of rise of racial anti-Semitism culminating in the National Socialist Movement in Germany. He viewed his ideology as combating that. He was also associated with far-left political organizations. And that's been typical, I think, of his disciples as you go down. He died in the late 1930s, but then his disciples effectively dominated anthropology down to the present. It was, it's classically portrayed as the nature versus nurture battle. In other words, uh, the issue was environment or race at this point, and Boas and these people 
had decided that the important thing was environment, and they had to defeat the racist. One of his big ideas was that he couldn't make generalizations about culture. He couldn't develop a theory, a universal theory of culture, uh, because each culture was, you know, incredibly unique and sort of beyond the pale of, of scientific generalizations. And prior to him, there, there was a sort of robust uh, evolutionary theory of culture that you, know, you had these various grades of culture, beginning with hunter-gatherers, chiefdoms, you know, nation-state societies, and so on. And the, the problem he had with that was that the people who were doing this viewed European culture as a pinnacle. And uh, that, to him, uh, was anathema. He, he was strongly identified Jew. He viewed the Prussian culture of his childhood as uh, very dangerous. Uh, and just uh, he had very negative um, you know, memories of that, very negative attitudes about that culture. And I think that's, you know, that's sort of a common denominator, I think, of all these Jewish intellectual movements that we're talking about, is this, this underlying you know, hostility, distrust, this deep historical memory of, of the negative things that have happened to Jews in European culture. So when he thinks of uh, the Prussian culture of Germany, he doesn't think of cathedrals and kings and, and leaders. He thinks of that there were elements of anti-Semitism there, that uh, it was a Christian culture, that Christians had oppressed Jews over the centuries. So for him, these, these cultures were not the pinnacle of civilization. They weren't, they weren't the pinnacle of their science or anything. And so as an attempt to deconstruct culture, this is the origin of the sort of cultural relativist movement, you know, that all cultures are sort of equal, there's no way to grade them in terms of even of their technical accomplishments or anything. I mean, you had a you had famous disciple, Margaret Mead. She was the person who, uh, under Bullock's direction, went to Samoa, did a study of the natives in Samoa and came back and said that basically Sturm und Drang, Storm and Stress, they got it from Schiller, uh, but since psychology was German, they were using terms like this. Storm and Drang during adolescence is only a cultural phenomenon. It's only in America. It's all the result of Christianity. If we eliminate all of these Christian sexual prohibitions, there will be no stress in society. And as proof of that, look at the people in Samoa. Well, the fact of the matter is that it became apparent after the publication of uh, Derek Freeman's book, Margaret Mead in Samoa, an Australian anthropologist, it became apparent that Margaret Mead made it all up. It was one of the biggest instances of academic fraud in the 20th century. She didn't speak Samoan. Freeman says she was just... Uh, put on by Samoan girls who would giggle and tell jokes and make fun of the round eye or whatever they call these uh, white people in Samoa. And she overlooked uh, a significant part of Samoan culture. It was made up. It was what we would call the Blue Lagoon anthropology. It's like Lord, the plot of Lord of the Flies. The plane is flying. It crashes on this tropical island in the Pacific, and suddenly, hey, all bets are off. Because all that stuff you believe was, was a moral law, that's all bourgeois morality. There's no bourgeoisie here. So morality doesn't have any force anymore, and we can all live like, uh, you know, free and wonderful people. The French had this fantasy. Rousseau was probably the main proponent of it with his idea of the noble savage. And now it caught on in America as a way of undermining the whole idea that there was a Christian morality that should be normative for this country. So it was a mythology. But it was a very effective mythology. Margaret Mead uh, essentially created a 
mythical anthropology that was accepted as gospel. Again, her writings aren't very important, except for the fact that they were promoted and became intellectual gospel, to the point that even after she was debunked and was shown to be a myth, shown to be false, shown to be either lies or, or uh, misinformation, that she is still ionized. And people were horrified that she was, her reputation would be called into question. So it's, it's a very powerful thing that anybody who disagrees with all this is up against. It, it's got a huge inertia at this point. It's very hard to change. These things take on a life of their own. They're, they're, it's a matter of promotion. It's, it's not a matter of truth or reality. It's a matter of leading a movement that has an influence. And so the, the influence comes not so much from the original person, but from the infrastructure, the publishing houses, the media, the professors in universities who assign Margaret Mead as part of their courses. You know, this is where she's a life of its own, and it is seen as true, it is seen as science, it is seen as inviolably correct. And I think the concept of race is very respectable. Uh, but still, the, the concept of race is, is profoundly controversial. So this is the legacy of that, and we still see that in the present, because people like, like Philippe Rushton at the University of Western Ontario in Canada, Richard Lynn, their analyses of racial differences in intelligence in different peoples of the world is the exact sort of thing that is anathema to the, the Boasian school, and um, that continues with us today, because the writings of people like uh, Rushton and Lynn are marginalized, they're not talked about. If they're ever mentioned in the newspapers, they, they tend to be qualified and bring in all these other people who say that's nonsense, you can't even get uh, the concept of intelligence doesn't make any sense, uh, there is no such thing as race, etc. You know, so it, it remains problematic to this day. The transformation of the universities in the United States in the direction of political correctness, a lot of that has to be at the foot of France Boulos. The Frankfurt School started in 1920s in Germany. It was composed entirely of a group of Jewish intellectuals associated with the University of Frankfurt in Germany. They were certainly part of the intellectual left and seen that way in Germany. When Hitler came to power, he dissolved them. They came to the United States, most of them, and they pursued their studies in the United States. Now, when they came to the United States, they were confronted with a sort of empirical culture. That was not so typical of Germany. Germany was more still in this sort of philosophical era. The intellectual life would have been dominated by people like Marx and Hegel and that sort of philosophical idealism or materialism in the case of Marx. And that, those were the, the debates were. Because the, the English tradition, uh, you can see in American sociology, was much more empirical. You'd go out and you'd get numbers. So when it came to America, they really had a need to develop an empirical study. And so they became much more empirically oriented. And so, but their philosophical ideas were developed when they were still in Germany. They were very much informed by their political attitudes. And these people, as I say, were, they were all Jews. They were deeply identified, strongly identified Jews. And once again, they were fundamentally concerned with anti-Semitism as a problem. And so they viewed their philosophy, and it really was a philosophy before it became an empirical study. It was a philosophy of anti-Semitism. And in that philosophy, they really used uh, fundamental psychoanalytic concepts. So they had the idea that anti-Semitism fundamentally comes from repressing nature. I mean, that's about as psychoanalytic as you can get. By repressing nature, you develop hatred to the Jews. And they even used ideas like projection, which is very much of a psychoanalytic idea. In other words, Jew, uh, the idea would be that 
um, the non-Jew would uh, have a problem, say, in his economic uh, livelihood or something like that, or he would w want power for his own group. Well, he would, uh, that is sort of morally questionable, and so he'd repress that and project that onto the Jews. So the Jews would be seen as lusting after power uh, and as oppressing Gentiles, when, in fact, uh, according to this theory, it was the, the Gentiles themselves who wanted power, and it was these, you know, wealthy Gentiles who would get these people to think that it was the Jews who were the problem. Really, they were oppressing the Jews, and they were also oppressing, you know, the poor class of the non-Jews. So this was a, a theory. It was not based on any data. Once again, it was based on a sort of combination Marxism and psychoanalysis. Um, no empirical data for this. But when it came to America, they, they you know, they couldn't just sell this as a philosophy because in America you really had to get some data. Uh, psychoanalysis managed to get by for decades without this, but I think the, Fran the Frankfurt School felt the need to sort of uh, get some kind of verification. So what they did when they got to this country was they started with the authoritarian personality study. And again, they got at the very elite universities. They're supposed to be the Columbia University, the University of California at Berkeley. And they came up with these questionnaires and so on uh, essentially designed to, to tap people's attitudes about Jews uh, and uh, try to show that, that these were a sign of pathology. So essentially what they did, uh, they, they uh, tried to show that people, in the end, with healthy family relationships, people who looked up to their mothers and fathers, people with a strong religious orientation, um, that these people tended to have negative views about Jews, and that essentially these negative views about Jews were a result of repression within the family, that they had hostility towards their parents, even though there's absolutely no evidence of this in any of the records that they had. positive feelings for parents as sort of sublimations of hostility because in the records, the, the people who had strong family relationships, had sort of fam strong attitudes about their in-group and their family, their nation, their race, these people tended to, to think uh, to have more negative views about Jews because after all, Jews were an out-group. Um, they, uh, they, they interpreted these positive attitudes about their family as, you know, repressions of hostility towards their parents. And conversely, when they found uh, sort of surface feelings of anxiety about their parents, they interpreted those as signs of deep affection. And so the people that they were idealizing had sort of anxieties about whether their parents loved them. They had ambivalences about their sexual innate, uh, identity and so on. Um, these are the people that the Frankfurt School were, were promulgating as the ideal liberal personality. The major obstacle was the family. And the nuclear family uh, with the father in the lead role was extremely dangerous. Franklin School saw it as a repressive structure. So the nuclear family, with, with a, a certain amount of restraint that's necessary for a family to function, was the place that people learned to be repressed. And they, they got conditioned to following orders. And this made them 
into what uh, a later writer, Adorno, would spin into a book called The Authoritarian Personality. And the authoritarian personality was very bad. Uh, it conditioned us for a society where we would follow orders, hence, you know, patriotism. So when the Kaiser called, Germans rallied to the cause. When the President of the United States called, the Prime Minister of Britain, uh, the President of France, people, because of the nuclear family, were conditioned to respond to the father. Anyway, that all is really pretty simplistic, but that's what they said. So it became very, very important to undermine the family. When I was a student at Johns Hopkins, I can recall in sociology and political science class, they did nothing but talk about this book published in 1950, The Authoritarian Personality. But, you know, they talked about it, they analyzed it, they criticized it, they talked about the methodologies and this and that. We actually had, it was a subject on my exams. But, you know, the weird thing was they never assigned the book for us to read. <laughs> and of course, it's only much later you see uh, when I was browsing a used bookstore that I discovered the reason why they never assigned the book. Lo and behold, right here on the introductory page, the authoritarian personality, copyright 1950 by the American Jewish Committee. This is ethnic politics. This isn't science. This is unbelievable. And, and so many of the problems now facing white Gentiles, which they may or may not, may not feel yet, arise out of this study and the prejudices, the bigoted positions that are set forth very candidly right in the introduction to the study. Let me read you a short passage which will illustrate the point. The present inquiry into the nature of the potentially fascistic individual began with anti-Semitism in the focus of attention. My, what a surprise, given who's sponsoring the study. The authors in common with most social scientists hold the view that anti-Semitism is based largely upon factors in the subject. That is to say, in the anti-Semite. <laughs> and in his total situation, whatever that means, then upon actual characteristics, behavior, or power of Jews. Now that's really interesting. <laughs> that is to say, <laughs> the study of anti-Semitism is isolated in this project to characteristics of individuals that identify as authoritarian personalities. It never examines the relationship between that individual's interests and the practical and enormous exercise of Jewish power, you see, within the political system. It never examines the consequences and impact of Jewish power upon that individual and his reaction to it, you see, because then the whole subject becomes much more nuanced and, frankly, far less prejudiced and far less bigoted. Uh, and, and, and here's another classic statement in the introduction to the authoritarian personality where they are discussing the methodology of all the studies in this thick tome. And they say here, <laughs> groups in which there was a preponderance of minority group members were avoided in the study. And when minority group members happened to belong to an organization which participated, pardon me, which cooperated in the study, their questionnaires were excluded from the calculations. 
they're saying there is that you see prejudice and racism are uniquely white characteristics. This isn't science at all. It's simply ethnic warfare, and it is such blatant and obvious ethnic warfare, this book, and everything it's spawned. The authoritarian personality did become very influential, and it, it certainly does have uh, some data. It's not, you know, they, they, they were successful, you know, in um, impressing, I think, a lot of people. But even, even early on when it first came out, there were, there were critics who looked at it and said, look, there's some, some weird stuff going on here. The, the reality was that the use psychoanalysis is a way of basically getting any, anything they wanted out of this. So there was some deception going on. I tried to, you know, I took special pains to show how, how counterintuitive these interpretations are, how lacking in scientific rigor. They have uh, embarked upon a, a promotion of a policy that, that is to deconstruct, or that is to tear down the major uh, foundations of Western society, the, the loyalty to the nuclear family, uh, loyalty to religion, to God, and, uh, and uh, loyalty to country. And in pursuit of doing that, uh, they play fast and loose with the facts. It's the, for them, it's the thought or the ideology that counts, not the empiric uh, justif uh, justification for, for conclusions. The Frankfurt School, at its base, developed the ideology that you had to sort of reject your family. By rejecting your family, you would then um, be more likely to uh, accept, you, know, you would be less likely to be anti-Jewish. And so, you know, it's a remarkable thing because they never supposed that Jewish children should reject their parents. If you're going to promulgate Judaism to the next generation, you have to have children who identify with their parents. But the authoritarian personality, identifying with your parents, who were Christian especially, was the epitome of pathology. This had to be eradicated. This would be a And we ask thee to bless the work of our hands and the people of this community. You see what the, what the authoritarian personality is, holding out individuals, radical individualism, as a cultural ideal. Now, of course, individualism is a long roots in, in European society. But what you're talking about with radical individualism is giving up all your allegiances. You just become the isolated individual. This is not a prescription that Jews have ever adopted. I mean, if there's anything that is characteristic of Judaism, it's a strong sense of identification with a group. So essentially, this is a prescription for the behavior of, of Gentiles that would uh, essentially make them less likely to have allegiances with other groups. Because what, from the standpoint of Jews, what is the, the most terrifying thing is a, a group of non-Jews united by an ideology where they have a strong sense of group membership and which Jews are viewed negatively. I mean, the paradigm, and that would be, of course, National Socialism in Germany from 1933 to 1945. Fundamentally, what Nazism was about was having a strong sense of being a member of a nation, having a strong sense that you're part of an in-group, and these other people uh, are not, you know, you're, you're not on their page, uh, Jews especially. And so... Uh, one way to get rid of that, basically, is to advocate individuals for everybody. Get rid of your allegiances. Don't have any allegiance to religion, country, race, even family. And again, one of the, the points I keep making there is that this is completely hypocritical because to be a strongly identified Jew means that you are highly connected to a group, that you have a strong sense of group membership, that you think of out-groups as potentially threatening, as enemies, and so on. In other words, 
the psychological processes of a group membership tend to make us view negatively the people in other groups, and, and that applies to Jews as well as anybody else. So strongly identified Jews tend to have strongly positive views of their group, strongly negative views of the outsiders. And, you know, that's part of the culture of critique is these Jewish intellectuals have very negative views about the culture and peoples of the outsiders. One of the questions about the spread of the Frankfurt School of Ideology in the United States, and especially in universities, is how they jumped so quickly from being a handful of people in key universities to dominating the university system. It was their presence throughout the system. While Boazian anthropology was spread by a careful process of the development of cadres and placing them in key positions over the course of a generation, the Frankfurt School very quickly came to ascendancy all across American higher education. And this has always remained kind of a mystery, but I think part of the mystery is explained by the role of the New School for Social Research and its agenda, which was to credential Jewish refugees from Europe before, during, and after World War II. These people were credentialed in a very pro forma manner. Very few of them did any, anything like what we would consider coursework. They were simply given advanced degrees. They turned out torrents of PhDs, and moreover, this was part of a broader stream of European Jews, many with phony credentials, coming into the United States at the very moment of the largest expansion of the American university system in its history, which was during the GI Bill after World War II. Suddenly, there was a need for thousands of new professors, and these could not be conservatives because they were still politically risky after World War II. But Jews were considered to be morally pure because of their terrible suffering, and their credentials were never looked at too closely. Suddenly, there were thousands, tens of thousands of new professors, and they all held this ideology, which was an ideology that was based on advancing their own interests. It was very influential in the academic community, and it spawned a whole lot of secondary literature, you might say. Again, uh, the authoritarian personality was funded by the American Jewish Committee, and you, there was a whole spate of books uh, funded by the American Jewish Committee or the Anti-Defamation League, the whole point of these uh, books was pretty much the same as the authoritarian personality. The idea is that majorities uh, must tolerate minorities. They should not be concerned about their own eclipse. That if they are, if you are any kind of psychological anxiety that a majority might feel that they are going to become a minority, and what that might mean for a majority is viewed as, you know, just a psychopathology. It's a medical health problem. We have to try to get rid of it. White Americans basically should accept this. And, and if they don't, then there's something wrong with you. One place Boazian ideology and the Frankfurt School come together is in their agreement that majorities can have no rights. This arises from the notion that there are no true majorities. So, for example, while Jews may form a cohesive, solid and long-lasting minority group, the ideas of cultural relativism and of the Frankfurt School act to disintegrate majorities. So, for example, there is no 65% white majority in the United States. There may be a few percent of Irish, a few percent of German, a few percent of this, a few percent of that. The kinds of differences that are created among the majority disintegrated in both of these ideologies. So while they are immune 
from these kinds of atomization ideologies and practices. They impose these on the majorities. So it's meaningful to speak of the French people and exclude the French. It's meaningful to speak of the British people while excluding the Scots, Irish, Welsh, and English. We see this at every institutional level. So, for example, in law schools, there are interest groups and student organizations for every imaginable ethnicity, except for the majority. Majority students simply don't exist. Now, a white man can be gay, he can be a transsexual, and then he becomes a minority. He has higher qualities as a result of being made into a minority. A white woman can become a feminist, and so she can be a member of a minority. So piece by piece, the majority is simply dismantled. This is the basis of the idea that majorities cannot exist. If a majority exists in the thinking of the Frankfurt School and in the thinking of the Boazian, it is simply not dismantled yet. And yet minority groups, by definition, are supposed to be immune from this, although in practice, only one minority is immune from this process of disintegration. Then this is never... Uh thought about as an ideology, say, in Israel, where you have a very clear ideology, this is a Jewish state, it's going to remain a Jewish state, it has a moral right to remain a Jewish state, and so on. But the rights of white America is to, to keep America as a white country with a white majority, you know, where white ethnic uh, interests would be safeguarded is completely rejected in this literature. And I think that is the fundamental uh, premise of political correctness. The, basically the idea that white people as a majority have no moral legitimacy to any political power, uh, that, that they don't have any, any moral authority to maintain a majority, to advance their ethnic interests, to think of uh, a certain piece of land as their land, uh, essentially, that they would be able to control that and so on. Again, this is, this is an ideology that you see throughout history, that all peoples have, you know, they basically got in a hunk of land and they've defended that. This has been the, the major, um, you know, story, obviously, in human history, and it's certainly the case with Zionists and Israel. So it's a normal human um, undertaking. And um, yet, in the, with this literature, um, the whole thrust of it is to call in the question, to, to say that, there is no moral legitimacy that, or that, that white Americans um, should simply accept their coming uh, minority status. And uh, anything else is, is there's something wrong if you think otherwise. There's something wrong with you. And, of course, the, the implicit idea here is that white people have nothing to fear about a future in which they are a minority, that their political interests, their ethnic interests are met, by, giving, by allowing tens of millions of people to come into the, the land that, that they're going to vote, they're going to have their own ideas about what uh, is a proper foreign policy, they're going to have allegiances to the people that they left behind, as Jewish Americans certainly have allegiances to Israel. So um, it's, a, it's a very frightening thing. Uh, I think that one of the things about the Frankfurt School is it was always presented as fundamentally a moral issue and a psychiatric issue. And fundamentally, it's about white guilt. I think the big story of the 20th century is you start out in the 20th century, European peoples have divided up the world. They basically run the world. Uh, they're by far the most powerful, most economically advanced, most scientifically advanced. They run the world. 
Um, and by the end of the 20th century, um, there, there is no moral legitimacy for having any sovereignty anywhere. In other words, European peoples have no, no um, moral right to sovereignty over any piece of land anywhere, even in Europe, traditional Europe. Because you see, the same people who are promoting massive immigration so on in this country are promoting immigration to Europe and other areas. And increasingly in Europe, uh, you're getting the, these ideas that, uh, that there's no such thing as a nation based on a certain ethnic group um, that is defending their interests and their territory. Instead, uh, there's a sort of the, the idea of a nation is simply a proposition a certain uh, moral set of values and rights and so on. And that's fundamentally what the Frankfurt School is promulgating, especially in the, in the wake of the Frankfurt School. People like uh, Lipset and Rav were basically strongly identified Jewish activists. They're associated with the ADL and so on. They are writing and basically saying the white Americans have no moral right to have a set of ethnic interests that they are defending. <laughs> to this discussion, the deeper grammar that needed to be explicated. Not only can you not 
mention the Jews as anti-Semitic. You, now, it's obligatory in, in Catholic circles even to say he was an anti-Semite. He was not an anti-Semite. What Catholics believe is antithetical to anti-Semitism. This is all purely a function of the Jewish control of the Catholic mind right now. There's somebody like Joe Pierce who could write a biography of Belloc and say he was an anti-Semite. It's preposterous. This was an awful book. Why is that? Well, he feels he has to uh, accept the, the canons of discourse that have been established by polite people in this world, and that means it, it, adopting Jewish categories and dealing with one of your own people. Palace 
all that type of stuff. That was dishonest. And I think, I think uh, Goldhagen's reputation has suffered as a result. I think everybody knows that was a specious piece of scholarship. But what it did, the positive effect, that it's not only, I am not the only person who has said this. There are other people I know who have written books who have said to me, it was Goldhagen that got me started on this. You realize, is this the fruit of all of these years of dialogue with the Jews? that you're going to have this guy being promoted by every Jewish organization as some type of scholar and a scholar at Harvard University to come up with this type of specious a drivel and suddenly something snapped and I realized, no, there's got to be a better explanation. And this book is my attempt to free discourse from that type of hegemony. We have internalized the commands of our oppressors. And there are Jews who say this. Yuri Sleskin has written a book called The Jewish Century in which he says on the very first paragraph, we're all Jews now. Well, what he means is that we all have imposed Jewish categories on our minds. And as a result, we cannot think, we cannot think properly. It's that simple. Because the crux of the book that I wrote here is that the essence of Jewish identity is rebellion against Logos. The Jews, for the most part, rejected Jesus Christ, called for his death, and had him executed by the Roman authorities. That is an act of such magnitude that it will affect all of history afterwards, simply because of the person of who it was. But by what you're doing here is you are rejecting Logos. If you reject that order, you are rejecting the moral order, you are rejecting the political order, you are rejecting the economic order, you are rejecting every order, and what you're establishing is a revolutionary compulsion in its place that will wreck society. Okay, that's why it's important. That's why this is important. That's why it's important to break through basically the Jewish uh, control of our minds that took place when we all went to college and we studied people like Sigmund Freud to break through that to the Logos uh, of reality, the, re the, the reason, the order of the universe, and then start dealing with realities rather than fiction. She was a, a Russian Jew who came over and got a job in Hollywood and was just totally enamored of America. But what you see in, in, in her books is kind of like the Jewish version of America. And so it's money. It's capitalism. Her favorite pin was like a dollar sign that she used to have. She thought Gary Cooper was the, uh, uh, the quintessential American, and so she created these kinds of myths that became uh, powerful for a certain group of people who were kind of leaning in that way anyway. It was kind of like a simplification, a stripping down of American uh, life and religious life. His highest moral purpose is the achievement of his own happiness. And so there would be people who would be caught, caught up in objectivism who were Catholic. My oldest son's generation, when they were in college, they were sick of all the liberal stuff. And so this seemed to be like an alternative to liberal stuff. And they go to these objectivist meetings and they realize, wait a minute, this is a Jewish operation. And the Goyim are kind of second-class citizens who just kind of go along with something that is basically not in their interest. I mean, if there were ever a class against this of internalizing the commands of your oppressors, it is uh, Ayn Rand's uh, objectivist philosophy. I'm challenging the moral code of altruism, the precept that man's moral duty is to live for others. I'm challenging the moral code of altruism. 
Ross became famous in 1969 with the publication of the Portnoy's complaint. And it had a, a it basically had a huge effect on subsequent literature. Uh, Erica John's uh, Fear of Flying is basically a female version of uh, Philip Roth. And uh, Woody Allen's uh, Andy Hall is basically Philip Roth. You should be ashamed of yourself. Why? I was just expressing a healthy sexual curiosity. Six-year-old boys don't have girls on their minds. I did. It's Portnoy's complaint, you know, transposed into Woody Allen's life. So the, the, the warning that Henry Ford made, the battle that the Catholics fought to keep all this stuff out of Hollywood films and television, was lost in 65. And once the battle was lost, the Jews pursued their advantage by promoting pornography and then promoting writers who were clearly influenced by this uh, pornographic uh, culture. And Philip Roth was one of them. What comes out in the book is basically the Jewish uh, animus against the Goyim, expressed sexually. There's something at least human about Portnoy's complaint. But what you see is, as the books go on, the animus becomes more and more overt and more and more strident, and the humor just starts to disappear. Whatever humor there was in Portnoy's complaint is, is gone by the time you get to the, the later books. It's all just pure aggression. If you promote sexual liberation, your group is going to succumb to sexual liberation. And the net result of sexual liberation is you die out. It's the lack of offspring. That's the net result of sexual liberation. And so why wouldn't they succumb? The same thing happened to the WASP ruling class. I dealt with this in uh, my book, Libido Dominanti. Arthur Packard, who was head of the Rockefeller Foundation, wrote a memo in which he said, I do not like Planned Parenthood because Planned Parenthood is promoting across-the-board contraception. We do not believe in across-the-board contraception. We believe that certain people should limit their families and that other people, namely we, should not limit our families. And we are being destroyed by Planned Parenthood because our offspring are the first people that march into the Planned Parenthood office. Same thing applies to Jews. The same thing applies to Jews, the chatterous paribus with their Jews and pornography as it's applied to wasps and contraception. Marx was clearly, clearly did not think of himself as a Jew. And I think you'll find this among leftists across the board. Trotsky is the classic example. He did not identify as a Jew at all. And he thought that the Jews were on the other side and that Jew Jewish capitalism was the enemy and that he was going to be an anti, in a sense, an anti-Jewish Jew. But I'm saying that the only reason he felt that was because of the Jewish revolutionary spirit, that he internalized the spirit. And so it becomes as, you know, complicated by the 19th century because you have both sides being dominated uh, by Jews who are fighting, in, in, now you've got the same thing. You've got Norman Finkelstein, who is a, a, in that tradition, the Marxist tradition, fighting against the Jews in the Zionist tradition. So you have this intra-Jewish battle going on again. I remember being at a conference in Washington, and they had this guy, Tyndall, who was head of the BNP, British National Party, in the 70s. And he gave a speech in which he said uh, how we should all be proud to be white guys. And then as an example of white culture, he mentioned Elizabeth in England. That's when the Catholics are being drawn and quartered, you know. So in other words, it's not going to fly.
Are Irish? Are the Irish white? Of course they're white. My mother's Irish. Or Jews white. And Tingle says, I don't know. It got to the heart of this ridiculous ideology of white guys. I don't believe in white guys. I don't believe that there was a, a time in America, if you lived in the South, you were a Protestant, and there was a large ferment going on called the Civil Rights Movement that polarized both sides. If you lived in the North, you were Irish and you were Catholic and you were Polish and all that other type of stuff. And that's the type of identity, ethnic identity, that is real. And so what you have now is a guy like Pat Buchanan, who just sent me his latest book with a nice, flattering you know, inscription on the front of it, saying that we white guys have to stick together. Pat, you're not a white guy. You're a Catholic. Catholics are not white guys. I don't know what I have to say. It's a, it's a fundamental, it's, and I think that there is an element of Jewish misdirection leading people into this trap. You know what I mean? Because they can manage that. Whereas they cannot manage a resurrection of Catholic identity. They can't manage that. <laughs> Nazism was itself a, a false identity. I mean, Germany, you were Protestant or you were Catholic. And that's the unfortunate situation after the, you know, the Reformation and the Thirty Years' War. And so what he tried to do was come up with some type of confection that was based on Wagner. It was a pre-Christian identity. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. It fails. And I'm saying this white guy stuff is going to fail. And I, I just, I'm not part, I just think it's, I mean, whether, whether you think it's a, it, it, it right or, it, it's preposterous, it's not going to work. To go back to somebody like Madison Grant, Madison Grant didn't believe in white guys. I feel like if Kevin were in the room here, I'd try and bring this to his attention. When I was growing up, you know, America's 90% white. Uh, it had a sense of, you know, white Anglo-Saxon culture as being sort of our culture, you know, and even though I wasn't really Anglo-Saxon, I identified with it and, and believed in it. But now it's, it's just it's completely gone. If you read Madison Grant's book, he says Europe is composed of three races, the Teutonic, the Mediterranean, and the Alpine. And only the Teutonic race should be allowed into America. Well, he doesn't believe in white guys. It has no roots. It's got no basis in anything. And then, then you get, well, what are white guy values? I once ran a, a cover of that, Fidelity Magazine. The title was White People and Their Values. And I put a picture of Mother Teresa and Joseph Stalin on the side-by-side uh, -side on the cover. It becomes an empty category that you can then fill with whatever you want to for purposes of political manipulation. Whereas that is not true of Catholic, Protestant, and Jew. These are real ethnic identities in America. And I think that that's what we have to get back to. I'm saying white is like goy. What is white? What is white? It's not black. Read the, uh, the thing I did uh, on slaughter cities. The polls in Chicago in 1910 referred to Protestants as white people. These people didn't know they were white. This was the interesting thing about that conflict when Martin Luther King shows up in Chicago in 1966. Why are they white? because Martin Luther King's here. That's why they're white. Oh, 
Otherwise, they were Lithuanians. It was the Lithuanians who threw rocks at him. You know, when he got out of the car and got hit in the head with a rock, they were Lithuanians. But they were being portrayed as white people. It's a false identity. It's going nowhere. You're not white, Pat. It's not an identity. Identity in America is religious identity. Religious identity is ethnic identity in America. This is not my idea. It's called the triple melting pot. It says that after three generations, country of origin ceases to be your source of identity and religion becomes your source of identity. And so America is Protestant, Catholic, Jew. That's what you are in America. And that's, that's the source of your identity. And if you're not that, then you're prey to pseudo-identities. And pseudo-identity are NASCAR dads, which are consumer groups. They used to be called blue-collar workers. Now they're a consumer group called NASCAR dads. Harley-Davidson riders are another pseudo-group. used to be blue-collar workers. And I'm saying white guy is a pseudo-identity that is created to keep people enslaved.
capitalism, usury, you could call it unjust gain. Uh, I think there's some themes here. You know, blessed are the poor, blessed are the poor in spirit, the poor are rich in faith, the rich are the ones who oppress. I mean, there's some themes that we're just going to keep in the background. Yeah. Um, I think what uh, you just took a trip, just got back from Iran and Mexico, and I think it's wise for us to just to talk about your, your week or so in Iran. Yeah. And Iran, obviously, is in the news. Um, some people want to say Iran is our number one enemy. You've heard that. Yeah. And there's probably truth to that. Benjamin Netanyahu certainly wants it to be our our enemy because it's his enemy. And he wants us to fight his battles, use us to fight his battles, uh, Israel's battles over in the Middle East. Uh, but we're in a period of, of change now, just dramatic historical change. The, uh, the Obama administration has decided that they want an agreement with Iran. Uh, after 30, uh, 36 years of constant attempts to overthrow the Islamic Republic of Iran, beginning with the hostage crisis, in 1979, following the, uh, the takeover, the return of the Ayatollah, one way or another supporting the uh, Iraqis in their war, using the Iraqis as our proxy, killed a million people. Uh, the Iraqis fired poison gas into uh, Iranian cities, you know, no condemnation. And, of course, Saddam Hussein earned the... the, uh, the, the, uh, the wage of people who do this kind of stuff when the Americans turned on him and they killed him. Okay, so we're, we're, we're at a moment of historical change. The Iranians would like to have the sanctions lifted. Uh, and so when I was there, uh, as I said in the article, it's going to appear in Culture Wars, big delegation of uh, high-powered Germans at the Masters of the Universal Hotel that I was staying at. Uh, why are they there? Are they there because they like to breathe the air in Tehran? It's some of the worst. Some of the worst pollution in the world, you know. City of 14 million people stuck in traffic. No, they're not there to breathe the air. They're there to do deals. Uh, they want to get in on the ground floor. So it's a sign to me that, first of all, that the uh, sanctions are going to be lifted. I think the insiders in Germany know the sanctions are going to be lifted. And I think if the United States doesn't lift them, that the Germans are going to lift them, and they're going to get in on the ground floor. So you have here one of the fundamental conflicts of a capitalist society. Are they going to uh, are they going to perdure in an arrangement that prohibits that inhibits doing business? Well, that's not part of the DNA of a capitalist society. So I think that uh, faced with the fact that the, the world, uh, the other uh, people who are involved in imposing the sanctions will probably bolt, even if they don't, I think the United States is going to go through and lift the sanctions. The whole nuclear thing is a total red herring. Nobody seriously believes uh, that the uh, Iranians are interested in producing nuclear weapons. Uh, Gareth Porter did, recently did a book in which he said, shows pretty clearly that this is purely a creation of Israeli propaganda. It's in the interest of the Israelis to convince the rest of the world that Iran is going to produce nuclear weapons. Nobody, the CIA doesn't believe it, but the Israelis want everyone else to believe it. And I think what you saw here was basically the, the, the dialectic of history. 
You know, every alliance becomes a civil war. And so what happened in March of this year is uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, who shows up in Washington uninvited, certainly by the Obama administration, uh, testifies before Congress. The Democrats are outraged at this insult to the, uh, to the ruling party, to the president. <clears throat> Vice President Biden boycotts the, uh, the speech. Fifty Democrats boycott the speech. And in the end, what you happened is you have a new configuration now. Support for Israel is a, is a partisan issue. So the Jews once again overreached, and now they got something that they didn't intend. This is what Hegel would call the cunning of reason, how God moves through history by using the evil intentions of the, the, the protagonists. Could, could this be because I, I was reading that, that President Obama was, was still raised up by the Jews and trained by the Jews, but under a different rabbi? It couldn't just be that he's... Yeah, we, what we see here is the split of the Jewish lobby. Yeah. We now have two Jewish lobbies which is not in their interest. Now you can play one off against the other. So the Republicans are promoting J Street, are, are, are using J Street as a cover to advance their agenda. Because if you've got one Jewish lobby supporting what you're doing, then it diffuses the, the, uh, the charge of anti-Semitism. You can't be called an anti-Semite now, which is the favorite weapon the Jews like to wield. Anytime someone criticizes a Jew, he's going to be called an anti-Semite. This is where they bludgeon down uh, criticism. Now, how can we historically get an idea? In the medieval times, when nations were Christian, if you denied the divinity of Christ, I mean, you could be uh, killed, right? You could be uh, executed in some way. Right. So the charge would be uh, a heretic because you're not holding to orthodox Christian faith. Yes. Today, you're being charged... What's, what's the heresy of today? If, if, if you um, criticize the Jews kind of thing, I mean, what do you... Well, there's a sociological theory that says that the amount, the amount of deviance in any society is always constant. So what we're saying is there's always going to be disapproval. The question is, what are you going to disapprove? So that, the, the, uh, let's say in the Middle Ages, the vehemence of criticism for heresy, there still is vehement criticism, but now it's criticism of homophobia. You know what I mean? So it's just the, the masters of uh, discourse then change the parameters, but you still have this. Sense. The one was an attempt to uphold Orthodox Christianity. Right. What are we trying to uphold today? Capitalism. Okay. I think that's the that's every. I think that's the hidden grammar. Well, you when, when it comes the, right down to it. The professor from uh, Yale, Galerner, um, he said, uh, the, America is the world's fourth religion. Yeah. That's his book, uh, David Galander, professor at Yale. America is the world's fourth great religion. Well, America is, a, okay, that's a cover for something. You know, I think it's a cover for capitalism, ultimately. You know, and I think that there is this messianic strain in American politics that uh, began with the Puritans who were Judaizers who felt that they were God's chosen people. You know the debate, you know, um, Cotton Mather, Cotton Mather as, as, you know, the, 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 versus Increase Mather, the role, whether the Indians are the ten lowest tribes, if we bring them in, is it going to begin the end times? The Puritans in England were heavily involved in this thing. It was clearly involved in the... Uh, the debate over to let to, what, whether to let the Jews back into England or not. Right, and the debate was really over because they wanted to let them back in primarily to convert them 
And if they if the Jews did convert, that would be the sign that the end of the world and Christ would come back. Right. And we and we're tempted to the same thing today. People are so friendly to the Jews, which is which is changing the typical relationship. But in order to convert them, but if but how wise is that? And if they have no intentions to come close to you to convert, but but well, they 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 clearly were manipulating the Puritans. I mean, they thought these these people are. I mean, there were people, they, they, you know, certifiable lunatics like Praise God Barebones, who introduced uh, a bill to, to make Hebrew the official language of uh, England at the time. And of course, it didn't work. It didn't work because of Prince. We've talked about this before. The Prince tomorrow, uh, uh, a guy writes. Uh, right. He brought up the whole history of the Jews. The actual way they actually behave. Okay. There was another guy, I forget his name, he was living in Germany at the time, a full-blown Puritan who wrote back to Cromwell and said, you're not really talking about the real Jew here. You're projecting this kind of vision of the Old Testament onto the Jew. They're not like that. I'm living in Germany. You should come to Germany and see the way they, the way they act here when, they, when, they, when they're cheating people and so on and so forth. And it, between Prynne and this guy, I forget his name, basically they... they uh, won the day. The Jews, the Puritans did not let the Jews into, into England. Well, in a sense, the Jews came into America, as you point out, from the Russian pilgrims. You know, well, but first of all, they were there from the beginning, from the very beginning involved in, slave, in the slave trade and the sugar trade. So they were there. The first uh, Masonic Lodge and the first, I think the first synagogue was in Newport, which was one of the main tra- you know, trading yeah, Newport. ports. So America, America had this, this, let's say, it's this America's DNA was sort of Judaizing from the beginning. They always had this messianic strain, and they were always projecting themselves into the role of Israel, the new Israel. This is, as you began the show, you're obviously referring to the Orthodox teaching, which is the church is the new Israel, but there's always this temptation to say, well, no, it's my group. That's the new Israel. This is a carnal interpretation of that. And my group is going to be the super ethnic group, and we're going to have lots of camels and lots of goats, and we're going to have lots of children. It's this carnal view of heaven on earth. So the Jews have always had this carnal view, and there are people who want to imitate the Jews, and the Puritans were a classic example of that. What was called millennialism. You know, they were going to, millennialism, they're going to bring in the millennium, and it was going to be done when the Jews were converted. So, yeah. so the millennium would come as soon as they succeeded yeah. at converting the Jews. So, so they, I mean, to get back to David Galanter, it, this is where this messianic strain in American politics comes from. And it's basically, I mean, even, uh, even the Democrats uh, are infected by it. I mean, Obama keeps talking about, he's trying to, I mean, I applaud his, his, his attempts to come to an agreement with Iran, I think that's a good move. It's a break, clearly, with this neoconservative uh, Israel first policy that has been disastrous for the United States. But even Obama talks about America as the exceptional nation. And there are people there who feel that basically it's our destiny. It's the destiny of America to bring liberation and democracy to the entire world. I mean, I don't know how anybody can believe this, but, you know, I mean, maybe the people would believe in the tooth fairy, too. But, well, obviously, the, the word for freedom has to be under question when, when freedom now is defined by gay uh, gay. Right. Parents. So, so let's, let's, let's contextualize this by talking about what just happened in Indiana, where we don't have a government. 
where basically the people of the state of Indiana through their elected representatives first try to specify that um, marriage is between a man and a woman. That's overturned by the courts. And then they try and come up with a Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which is supposed to say, okay, you can't be forced into uh, being dragooned into supporting a gay marriage. Well, that's overturned. Well, in what sense do we have uh, democracy here? After that experience, and in a sense, I'm going to Iran after that experience as a citizen of the state of Indiana, which is basically now I have to, I think we have to, tell me, let me know if I'm wrong here, but it looks as if Indiana is simply a colony of uh, Hollywood, in other words, the Jewish controlled media. I mean, I think Robert E. Lee uh, and Wall Street. The, the two coasts are, are, are basically control Indiana. Indiana has no right to pass laws that uh, the Jews on Wall Street or the Jews in Hollywood find objectionable. And so they send in their CEOs to rewrite our laws for us. Well, how am I supposed to defend that? Well, uh, Congressman Wolf, retired 40, 34 years from Virginia, came out and was on the Christian that saying that you know Christians should get ready for going to prison because this is all bad it's getting. I mean, in other words, if you stick to Orthodox Christianity on their definitions. Well, in that regard, there is a uh, a, a document that is now circulating uh, in which uh, uh, there's a professor, I forget his name, but he's, going, he's trying to propose that uh, anti-Semitism now be part of the universal criminal code. In other words, just as people are against genocide and they're against racism, these are universally condemned. Now, anti-Semitism is going to be part of that same type of universal okay, so code, legal code. Stephen Seitzer, who was in Campus Crusade for Christ, like I was, he's a year younger than me, and he's a priest um, in England, and he's probably the leading uh, sophisticated spokesman dealing, uh, uh, dealing with Christian Zionism you know, and, and criticizing it. He had a link on his Facebook linking an, to an, uh, an article about Israel being involved in 9-11. And you know about this. And immediately, I think Facebook banned him, and, uh, and that his church uh, censored him. From, the Church of England. Church of England censored him from discussing anything in that direction. That would be considered anti-Semitism, I would imagine. In other words... Suggesting that Israel is behind 9/11. Well, that, that, let me tell you, I've, I read the law that the model statute. Okay, I think I've had enough of this. Anyways, it's fascinating that uh, Roman Empire, its machinations, its uh, unions that it has with the synagogue of Satan, the leadership of Islam, all the other major religions. Don't forget the religion of the state, Davian socialism, and then it goes on and on and on. It's all attack on you, your freedom, the word of God. It's interesting that the uh, black priests of uh, the Jesuits control it all. And, uh, and, uh, oh well. Well, we heard a Roman Catholic's point of view. So be it. Don't agree with everything, but there are some historical precedents for what he's saying. And what can you do about it? So, just put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and move on.
Anyways, I got a six sons deal with us. For those who joined, thank you. God bless. Take care.